0: Attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun.
1: Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own.
2: Worst episode ever. Why?
1: Who shot first? Who
3: gives a shit? shit. It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
1: Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is my 50th episode, epic milestone, anniversary retrospective spectacular extravaganza. I mean, 50 fucking episodes, and they were all awesome. Because of that, I'd like to take this occasion to look back at other memorable 50th anniversaries, and, I guess specifically, 50th issues of comics, to be precise, and... You know, maybe they're great, maybe they're crap on a stick without the stick, maybe they're just plain weird, but all of them are unforgettable. To help me out, I've assembled a crack team of podcasters, or a team of podcasters on crack, actually, I have no idea, and one such is the host of Dave's Daredevil Podcast and co-host of the Starman Observatory, the inestimable, immutable, inimitable, unstoppable, and improbable Mr. J. David
0: Weeder. Welcome back to the show, sir. Feels like I never left. In fact, <laughs> I've been over in the corner the whole time trying to figure out what to do with my hands. I just pulled <laughs> them up in the air and I don't <laughs> It's funny you mentioned Starman Observatory. <laughs> not but... by accident, actually.
1: Yeah, not by accident. Yeah, so basically I sent out the bat signal, got a bunch of replies. here uh, was one of the very first uh, uh, to volunteer to be on the show. He had a very particular comic book in mind that he wanted to talk about, and it, this is one of those things that I need very little persuasion in order to talk about. Dave, would you care to introduce the issue? It's
0: James Robinson's Starman number 50.
1: That's right. It's James Robinson's Starman number 50. <laughs> <laughs> or
0: Sorry. fitty,
1: fitty, if you will. Actually, this one is uh, James robinson and david goyer isn't it
0: yeah about that you got something to say there um nope i better just leave it alone okay well uh, Goyer goyer can pull the story out when he wants to and
1: i don't know it, it, <laughs> to be honest with you i one of the few times I'd, I'd actually be ready willing and able to trust david goyer as a storyteller is when he's and you know what i hate to say it not trying to sound snooty about it. When you pair him up with like a real writer, like James Robinson, especially like 1990s vintage James mm-hmm. Robinson, I don't see where it could possibly go wrong
0: myself. So no, not especially not in this book. I mean, for those that don't know this, this volume of Starman was built for the long game. So there's a plan in place. So Goyer may have had some plot input, but Robinson still had his eye on the prize, which is kind of the final epi- issue. And this was definitely a turning point towards that.
1: No doubt about it. Now, in relation to that, um, you got a synopsis for us?
0: I do, to kind of break down Starman number 50. Uh, this was cover dated February 99. It actually went on sale December of 98. Title is Lighting the Way, Then, Now, and Yet to Be. And Tony Harris gives us kind of another nondescript cover. And that's not bashing it. But most of the covers on this book were pretty similar. They blur. They're, yeah, they're all good. They're Don't sort get of me like wrong. Alex Ross covers in that way. They're just kind of there. Yeah, it's kind of a – it's like a cross between Alex Ross and Tim Bradstreet where they look the same but you kind of like looking at them. Uh, but as Trent has said, not only do we get James Robinson, we get plots by David Goyer, pencils by Peter – screw that guy's name uh, – Wade Von Grabberger as Inker, Keith Champagne as Inker, Bill Oakley and – as letterer, and John Callas as colorist. Mm. And basically in the distant future, 20th century hero Jack Knight, a.k.a. Starman, and his friend Michael Thomas, a.k.a. a different Starman, and the pseudo-ghost thing of Jack's father Ted Knight, the original Starman. I know, don't try to keep them straight if you haven't read the book. But mm. they have arrived from the past, and they are held by the science police, and the legionnaire Thom Kalor, a.k.a. Starboy, the man who one day will be Starman. And Jack and his band are searching for Will Payton. Yes, that's yet another Starman from the 90s. It's <laughs> a lot of Starmans or Starman or whatever. Thom realizes who they are and basically recruits them to help with a giant black colossus of an entity that envelops the planet of Xanthu, which is fun to say. The other Legionaries have tr- Legionaries, really? The other Legionnaires <laughs> have tried to enter the inky blackness of the entity and failed. A lot of them have come back dead or nearly dead. So Jack decides to go ahead and enter it with his pals which seems like a great idea. And they take Starboy and Umbra. Umbra, just call her Shadow Lass. And when they get to the center, they find the Source, the Shade, this immortal and former Flash villain who can make shadow constructs. The Shade tells Jack to spear him with his cosmic rod. And Jack does, which frees the Shade. And with Michael's help, Jack absorbs the star power from space, rips a hole through the entropy, rips a hole through the entropy, and frees the planet and those captured within it. Shade waxes out how his arch-enemy Culp infected him with the shadow and all kinds of tidbits about the future until Starboy stops him because knowing about the future is bad. He might take an almanac to the future, or the past, whichever works. Mm -hmm. And eventually Jack and company leave the Legion and head back to the 20th century, but end up in 1922 orbiting a planet known as Krypton. Never heard of it. Nope.
1: (laughs) So, um... Guest of honor, man. Uh, what'd you think?
0: I, uh, because <laughs> as soon as you messaged me, I'm like, well, Starman, I got to go Starman because that's a hell of a book. And when I open the book, I'm like, oh, hell yeah. This is, I mean, we mentioned it's a culmination of things. Robinson's main goal was not just to tie in this legacy because Jack takes over for his dear departed brother who took over for his father as Starman. It's a legacy book. And Robinson's like, I'm going to tie every character called Starman into this. And this is where that tying really begins and he wasn't playing around either dude he seriously went for it if it's obscure like Starboy, how do you tie the legion into a 20th century book outside of final night um there's a lot of good moments man i mean the ghost of ted kind of learning that his inventions the science he's been working on is known in the 30th century kind of it just seals the deal man i mean that's A big piece of the puzzle, because when Jack took over the mantle, his whole thing was telling Ted, you're going to do science. I'm going to do the superhero bit. That's the trade-off." And, of course, Jack was somebody who really didn't seek out to be a superhero. He he played as if he wasn't interested in the game. But as as the book goes on, you start learning, no, Jack's always had this in his mind. He just didn't feel he didn't feel that he was the right person for it.
1: Right. And... You know, in relation to that, like you were saying just a minute ago, I can honestly say, in a million years, I would never have thought to connect the Legion of Superheroes in any way with with Ted Knight. <clears throat> Basically, what you're doing is you're tying the Legion of Superheroes in with the with, with the Justice Society of America, and mm-hmm. that is so freaking epic, and it's such an obvious freaking idea. I honestly am surprised it took until 1998 for someone to figure this out, right? That is how shocking yeah. and obvious it is. But, you know, I don't know. I guess it's just a sign of one of the greats that whenever whenever you read one of their stories, you slap yourself over the head and say, why didn't I think of that?
0: Yeah. Could and, have had a V8. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And the other thing, though, that this issue does, apart from looking, looking to the past, without getting too spoilery uh, – James Robinson, he kind of walks that fine line between letting you know some something seriously freaking important is on the horizon. Whenever um, uh, uh, the Shade makes reference to a uh, Culp and you know goings on there, these are things that at, at the time of this story has those things haven't happened yet. And like you know, Dave was saying, you know, you can't really tell people too much about the future, or else God only knows what might happen. But it's setting up something and. You know, it it it, this is not, I guess, just meaningless, casual, throwaway bullshit dialogue. Something really huge is is hinted at here, and you don't really get the full effects of that until spoilers. Jack makes it back to Earth in his own time, and then (laughs) promptly all hell breaks loose.
0: Yeah, but this, I I think this was the first time this was hinted at. Uh, this directly, yes, but. A lot of the adventure you're seeing now was hinted at in the early issues. Right. Again, it's a a book that had its eye on the long game. If you're reading issue zero or issue one, there are things that are mentioned that come to culmination way down the line. And that's, I mean, as much as I love Harry Potter, the reason I love it is because everything's cohesive. Mm -hmm. And this is a book that is probably one of the best runs you'll ever find of any comic anywhere because it's one cohesive story. Because, well, Robinson had a nice deal with DC that only he could write Jack.
1: And I think it's kind of now. – I've always wondered how binding that is. You know, um, In other words, if they were to put, publish a new Jack Knight story now, I mean, would they be within their legal rights or was this something that was only allowed at the time or, or, or what? I, that I never really I, like, figured out. On I numbers. don't
0: know if it still applies to New 52, but I would be okay because the New 52 Jack is not this Jack. That universe is gone. So they can do whatever they want with their pseudo jack. Fair enough. All right. Fair enough. Well, the um, the
1: other thing about this issue that uh, really popped out at me, and I know this is just kind of I don't want to say nitpicky, but this I mean, every now and then you read a, a comic book and it's just it's got a, a particular character or team or concept or something in there that for whatever reason it just really it, it just scratches the itch for you. And on uh, uh, page 18, you have uh, Star Boy, or I guess I'd probably better call him Thom just to simplify things. Uh, the, Legion, the Legionnaire Thom, he's sort of losing his mind over the fact that uh, his compatriot, his teammate, I have to spell her name just so you don't mix her up with someone else. Her, her name <laughs> is spelled L O N N A. That's her first name. Last name is L E I N G which if you wanted to speak it out loud you would say it's Lana Lang <laughs> but <laughs> not that one it's a different one and uh anyway her name as you might have guessed is Insect Queen and I just liked Lana a lot and I just thought it was just kind of a a, a cheeky sort of 90s ironic kind of I don't know I just I I liked Lana and I I think she ends up uh, I think she survives the issue I don't think she's actually killed off here and I as I recall anyway and I don't know. I just always like seeing her, and always, I just get a kick out of her any Any excuse there is to put her on the page, I'm there. So yeah. that was uh, just a – like I said, it's, it's, an, it's something nitpicky to you know kind of uh, obsess over, but I liked it. So it was, it was, that was fun.
0: Good nod to Silver Age Legion stories when Lana would just hop to the future for no reason.
1: <clears throat> right.
0: What did you think about how – a lot of the pages in this are just darkness. Yes. And I want to kind of call crap on it, but at the same time, that managed to make it really intense.
1: Well, and honestly, I think sometimes people probably shouldn't point fingers, but I do think that there are times when scenes are set in darkness for absolutely no reason. You – basically somebody was lazy is what it comes down to. And I don't really get that impression here. What – Just by I guess just by virtue of the fact that the cause of all of the darkness is the shade. I mean there's there's a textual explanation for it, but honestly, I don't put anything past James Robinson in 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 this vintage of his career. He's one of the guys that if it's in there, he's gonna find a way to make it work. He doesn't use crutches. And so, to me, it just felt like it was a natural, organic part of the story. And especially since it was, it was kind of short-lived. Now, there's a lot of darkness on on the individual pages, but I think only like uh, something like two and a half pages are really completely dark. Otherwise, you know, there may be a lot of darkness on the page, but there's also a lot of art and stuff too. It's not, you know, someone taking the uh, cheap way out, is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. At a glance, it would seem that way, and then as you begin reading, you start feeling that claustrophobia.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and when it's done well in movies, and God, I hate it when people uh, compare comics to movies because they really are different things and they should do different things. But the same kind of thing, you know, goes for a movie when when basically the camera is plunged into darkness, and you in the right filmmaker's hands, that can actually be very powerful and very effective. And, uh, in fact, Tim Burton in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he used it in a very different way. <laughs> but damned if it wasn't effective. And nothing
0: like what it was used
1: here. But anyway, bottom line, I, I loved it. I thought it was cool. What would you think of it?
0: I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I love this whole run. It's, it's something where if I can get somebody in on Starman, yes, it's, it's a slow burn at the beginning of the book because things are building. Mm. But after you get about, about halfway through the first Omnibus, which is available in, in trade paperback, you're on. You're hooked.
1: Now, approximate, like what approximate issue number would that Because I've never read the omnibuses.
0: Um, let's see. I think it would be six or seven. But issue six or seven is when things really get cooking. Oh. Basically, for me, it was when Jack went to the circus and did it with the octopus woman
1: fucking a that's when i really (laughs) and not because it was an octopus one although that is you know that that is the kind of weird freaky fucked up sex i don't think either of us would ever have but out of good taste i think but um yeah there was something just so as weird as that sound and it is weird don't get me wrong but for as weird as that sounds it just it's so of a piece with what's this this iteration of starman was all about nothing was being forced I guess is what I'm saying it just uh, I really liked it that was a, that was the moment when I said oh okay. and it wasn't the fact that he that, that he boffed an octopus woman I don't mean that I mean just the weirdness of uh, of the story you know the antagonist that he was up against the stakes he was playing for that that was when I I locked in on the story so yeah or, or not the story this series so yeah. yeah
0: and not long after that was the first talking with David which man if you're not on of board by that old. point there's no going back Right. There's no hope for you if you're not on board at that point.
1: Yeah, I, well, I, and I agree. And, you know, the hell of it is like all of those things are gold. But if you actually just read those talking with... I don't know if you've ever bothered to do this, but just read those issues by themselves, like independently of the rest of the uh, of the series, it really is weird how their, their relationship really does evolve to the point where by the... Shit, I really don't want to give away too much, but something happens at the end of the series between... <laughs> fact fuck i don't even want to say that but basically yeah, it, it fucking works is what i'm saying yes
0: yeah that's a better way to put it that's hard it's a hard thing to say it's like answering the question who is the star made of 1951 well don't do it yeah no i'm not going to answer it, it <laughs> even even hinting at it gets problematic
1: right other than other than to ask the question and and the, and i hope that actually kind of says something the fact that you know throughout this whole thing dave and i have been so careful to talk on, like mostly about this issue except Maybe things that have taken place prior to this issue, but we don't really spoil a whole lot. This is one of those things that I think even more than The Walking Dead, I want people to go into it and just have an immaculate experience with it, just like I did. And I feel like to even talk about too much of it, and as far as spoilers, I, even if it's minor stuff, because I think you know, in the larger scheme of things, I really don't think The Starman of 1951 adds up to a whole lot as far as like the plot of the book but it's still so fucking cool i don't want to take the chance of anything getting ruined you know whenever someone listens to us talk about it and because that's how i went into it and that's how i want other people to to enjoy it if they've never read this book before you know so i hope you take our silence on certain things like that that's a hell of a of an endorsement if i was talking about the walking dead or why the last man or one of those other just must read books I wouldn't necessarily have that attitude about it here. Everything is sacred. Yep. That's, I think you nailed it on the head with that. Yeah, I, I tend to do that. So, <laughs> all right, well then otherwise I think that's uh, basically it uh, for, for me, at least in this segment. So I just like to thank Dave. Thank you very much for taking the time, especially since I know you're on a kind of a crunch today. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join in for my epic, epic, epic 50th an- uh, anniversary, retrospective, ex- etc.,
0: extravaganza it's super epic no i'm glad you asked i was i was excited to talk about some jack knight so (laughs) okay great
1: well uh everyone else just sit tight i'm gonna play some promos and i'll be right back
0: Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, Podcast Obsessed. Got it.
4: John's John's Toilets and Toiletries.
0: John, we need to make a new podcast.
4: A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need
0: a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures
4: ooh who who was the artist on starman what's that jack burnley
0: yes we should cover jack burnley's run on adventure comics and starman
4: okay i have just the perfect guy because i know another guy who loves jack burnley so let me call charlie neymar see if we can get him on a three-way here
0: hi what's up charlie charlie Ah. we need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com are you available uh, monthly? What uh, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is Go! The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com.
1: Uh, j david weeder but you can call him dave i've actually got a new uh, guest host with me some we're going to be talking about a completely different comic completely different era and uh, that's basically what we're going to be doing that's the plan so i would like to welcome back to the show one of my favorite guests the co-host of the starman observatory mr john m wilson himself welcome back sir
4: Thank you. Applause, applause. You're going to my boots. I appreciate
1: it. <laughs> so what are we talking about today?
4: Uh, well, you know, I was looking through all the 50s, and I thought, well, there's, like, you know, the Gold Key Star Trek 50. There's, like, Two Rocks Son of Stone number 50. There's all these really classic, awesome 50th issues out there. And I thought, no, screw it. I'm going to go with Amazing Spider-Man number 50.
1: And what's so damn good about Amazing Spider-Man number 50?
4: Well... I'm so glad you asked that, Trentus. Or should I, call you, should I call you Your Excellency? I don't want to get like your, your men after me again. Uh,
1: you know, actually, at this point, I think I've uh, mollified them, so, you know, you get a free pass.
4: Okay, okay, good. Amazing Spider-Man number 50 is the classic, classic story, Spider-Man no more. It, if we can just ignore the fact that it has been sort of pulled out of mothballs and rehashed i think at least 17 and a half times since then (laughs) it's true this is the original classic story um it has an amazing cover with peter parker walking towards uh the camera and the looming shadow of spider-man moving away from us looking over the shoulder like he's never going to see us again and it's it's just an awesome
1: cover very iconic it's incredible this is one of the most iconic spider-man covers uh at least that I'm aware of.
4: Yeah. <clears throat> you want to go ahead and
1: dive into what happened in this book? Absolutely, positively.
4: Okay. Well, I uh, always like to read the credits because Marvel's 60s credits were pretty fun to read. We have Stan the Man Lee and Johnny Ringading Ramita invite you to join the capricious company of Mickey DeMeo Inker and Sam Rosen Letterer. Hang loose, hero. It's action time. Uh, like I said, it's called Spider-Man No More. We open up with Spider-Man just in the middle of attacking some people. I don't know if they stole his milk money or what it is, but he is punching and kicking and jumping and jiving. <laughs> uh, he saves a couple of people who the girl is all like, oh, thank you. And the guy's like, dude, that's a man in a spider costume. He is dangerous. Get away. So um, Spider-Man always, you know, he never gets any love. No. Uh, he gets back home to find out that his Aunt May has had his her seven – thousand five hundred twenty eighth stroke and so uh she's over at anna watson's house harry osborne's there she was calling for peter but now she's passed out uh peter's all mopey and he stays up all night trying to study but he can't because he's distracted goes to school the next day and fails a test professor warren is very hard on him about that because he came in this big bright star and now he's not a bright star anymore uh, to just add insult to injury and pour salt all over that bleeding, pussing wound, we have J. Jonah Jameson on a, his you know Spider-Man rant on the television news. And Peter actually starts to listen to the guy. And he's thinking, you know what? Why am I even doing this anymore? Spider-Man just adds so much trouble to my life. I'm not there for my aunt. I'm not there for my studies. I never get to see my friends. I'm done. So he walks through the mopey rain of sadness and in the middle of an alleyway, he pulls off his clothes, takes off his Spider Man suit. We don't see the naked bits. Thank puts
1: goodness. his clothes
4: back on, and leaves Spider Man in the trash can.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, next day, a kid runs into the Daily Bugle and shows Jonah Jameson that the Spider Man costume has been left in the garbage. Jonah is so excited and so happy, and feeling so generous that he gives the free kid a, that he gives the kid a free copy of the Bugle on the way out.
1: I tell you, he's all heart, that one. <laughs> um,
4: at the same time, there's some movements in the underworld. Now that Spider-Man seems to be gone, which, of course, Jonah Jameson has plastered all over the television and uh, newspapers, the large, fat crime boss known as the Kingpin is ready to take over. This is the first time we've ever seen this gentleman. We don't really know much about him, but he's ready to take over the crime boss uh, Position. All of the underworld gets together behind him. Uh, A recurring character in the story named Patch, who is actually Bugle reporter Frederick Foswell in disguise and former crime boss himself. He decides to get in on the action and all this is going on. I don't want to spend too many details. Peter Parker starts enjoying life. There's no more Spider-Man uh, woes. Uh, he's, he's starting to realize that he's catching Gwen Stacy's eye and she has definitely caught his, even though he's supposedly dating Mary Jane at the time. But she's a bit of a um, uh, airhead during this season. So he doesn't really know if he wants to stay committed to Mary Jane or not. He's around for Aunt May. He has to talk himself out of catching some bad guys. He starts to catch up on his studies. But then one day happens, he's heading home, and looking up at the top of a warehouse building, he sees the night guard is being attacked by some hoodlums. So there's no one else to save this guy. He's the only one who can do it. He jumps up the building, punches out the bad guys, stays in the shadows so his face can't be seen, and the night guard thanks him for his help. And the night guard reminds Peter Parker of his Uncle Ben. And Uncle Ben is the whole reason that Peter's in this business. We get a flashback to the origin story about how Uncle Ben was shot by a thief that uh, Peter Parker had let run by him. And he catches the thief as Spider-Man and realizes that, you know what, even though it's there's a whole lot of cost to my personal life, there's a whole lot of sacrifice, I have to help people. I have to be Spider-Man. Um, the subplot with Frederick Foswell, who was patched continues. He goes to visit the Kingpin and offers to take over Kingpin's own organization and let the Kingpin stand on as one of his lieutenants. Uh, the Kingpin shoots a ray at him for his troubles. And we end the issue with Peter Parker sneaking into the bugle, taking back his Spider-Man costume, making fun of Jonah Jameson and swinging off to kick ass all over again.
1: This and, is, this is really weird. This, I, I can't put my finger on it, but like the basic story to this. It just reminds me of something I saw in a movie one time. Yeah? Yeah, I I can't remember. It had like Tobey Maguire in it, I think. I don't. Know. And, and maybe that one girl from the vampire movie? Yeah, yeah, like from the 90s, I think. Yeah, she went on to do something or other, and then she was a cheerleader at one point. And yeah, I think she was in the movie, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something like that, yeah.
4: You know, actually... I won't, t- it, I won't tell you how many... Um, Times i fantasized fantasize about her, though, as a teenager. But anyways.
1: Well, you know what? Um, I'm going to break protocol here a little bit, and um, I'm going to confess to the fact that I, a ginger, for a long time had Miss Kirsten Dunst, a fellow ginger. She was in the spank bank for quite a while there, yeah. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it.
4: I'm only just a couple years older than she is. And whenever I saw her on interview with a vampire, you know, it was just like just that perfect age. And then I grew up with her. So every time she did a movie, I was still just like the perfect dating age for her, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. And,
4: um, and so she's always just been one of those girls. I never cared for her portrayal of Mary Jane, but personally I blame her director because she has played Mary Jane in other films and done a good job of it. But whenever they gave her this script, she was playing somebody, but it wasn't Mary Jane.
1: Well, uh, think of it as humoring me. Uh, exactly – you know what, mate? Well, yeah, fuck it. We're on the subject. Um, think of it as humoring me, right? Like what exactly – because keep in mind, I'm I'm not – I like Spider-Man, but I wouldn't say that I am uh, like a core Spider-Man fan. So what exactly was it that was off about Mary Jane's portrayal or, or characterization really in Mary the movies? Mary
4: Jane – I'm sorry, we
1: off. Oh no, that's it. I was going to ramble after that. Go for it.
4: Mary Jane is outgoing. She is loud. She's a social butterfly. She's carefree, and even to the point of being slightly obnoxious about it. And we saw little teeny glimpses of that in the first film. For instance, whenever um, she got done talking to Peter in their backyard, and then Flash drives up, and she like races out to drool over his new car. Mm-hmm. We saw a little glimpse of like a a a. a excited about life kind of girl. But every single time she talked to Peter, she put on her mouse voice, Mm -hmm. and she became this little wistful thing, this little frail I-don't-know-what, and it just wasn't the character that I wanted. And I love Kirsten. I do. But that, I don't know, it just never struck me as being a Mary Jane kind of character.
1: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Now, one of the things that kind of threw me about this, uh, and I guess only like when you – it was only whenever you finally got to it in uh, your little synopsis. Only then, I guess, did it really click. Um, Professor Warren is basically, uh, he, he's pretty much busting Peter's balls about uh, his lackluster performance. It's right there on page five, looks like the fifth panel. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, telling Peter, look, you know, you need to face the fact that, you know, y- you suck and you used to not suck, but now not only do you suck, but like you suck out loud. And you need to do something so you don't, at least so you don't suck as bad anymore. Right? right? That's what needs to happen here. Now, and that's fine. You know, he said, yeah, you started off with one of the finest records. And I'm like, okay, motherfucker, uh, on his first day in your class. As far as you know, he caused a fucking explosion, all right? What the hell are you talking about? So, <laughs> anyway, and it's just that I, I, I hate to say it, but it was only when I was reading it this time that it kind of that, – that moment came back to me. And I, if I'm not mistaken, Norman Osborn was mixed up in that. So, yeah.
4: And this is, of course, the character who would later uh, swipe some of Peter's and Gwen's DNA and clone each of them and dress up as a humanoid jackal to taunt Spider-Man.
1: Really? Yep. I have no recollection of those stories. Are you sure? I think you may be thinking of something else, because I'd like to think that if a, if, a, if a clone of Peter Parker ever popped up in these books, <laughs> I think I'd remember that. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh. Well, I, I
4: actually have a lot of fondness for the original Clone Saga, the 70s one. I haven't read very much of the 90s Clone Saga at all.
1: Well... Um, can I give you a nickel's worth of free advice then? Yeah. Don't. <laughs> um, look, it, it's one of those things, the way I look at it is this, right? And maybe it's not fair, but I think of it like this. I'm sorry, hold on. It's like the American Beauty soundtrack.
4: Yeah, it's my wife. I'll text her. You might have to re-say that last sentence, though, sorry.
1: Oh, no problem. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, maybe it's not fair for me to say this, but this is just the way that I look at it, right? When I was 13 or 14 or so, basically right as you know, the uh, 1990s clone saga was really kicking into overdrive, mm-hmm. my theory is this. Marvel just didn't want me to be a Spider-Man fan. They're you know, like, you know what? We're doing good right now. We don't need you. Why don't you just go back to D.C., just camp out there. You seemed happy there. We were happy having you there. That's where you need to stay. Because I got to tell you, man, I mean, it's like every time I tried to get into Spider-Man, some fucking thing would come along. And, of course, the granddaddy of them all, the Clone Saga. I mean, good luck getting into Spider-Man with that.
4: And all the weird machinations behind that story just make it even more difficult because it was supposed to be Spider-Man the end. Right. I mean, that was supposed to be the end of the Peter Parker Spider-Man. We're going to change it over. You know, that was the original One More Day. To, to cast off the marriage, to give Peter Parker a send-off, and bring in a new Peter Parker, a copy of Peter Parker with a little bit of a different background, to be the new Spider-Man. And then they decided to stretch the story, and then they decided to undo the story.
1: You know, there are there are very few instances in, uh, in, in comics, at least that I'm aware of, where the behind-the-scenes story is more interesting than what's on the printed fucking page. You know? But I, I, you have to admit, dude, the uh, you know the Clone Saga is kind of one of them. Now, I, and it's one of those things that, you know what, if you doubt me on this, I ask only that you consider this. There came a point, and it was actually it was a couple years ago, in fact, where Marvel decided to it, – it's a non-continuity thing, but they basically decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to publish the original fucking Clone Saga the way that it was originally supposed to have been done. And you can see for yourself how punk rock it would have been. Dude, I read it. Bitch, it wasn't all that. <laughs> I, I, to I wasn't it. too
4: impressed with it either. I actually didn't finish.
1: It. Oh, you didn't? Well, I'm... Yeah, I read,
4: I read the first two or three issues and just wasn't... It, since I had never read the original Clone Saga, or you know, the 90s Clone Saga, the original form of it, I wasn't that invested in the storyline. And so reading the, the way it should have gone kind of thing, it just it, it didn't grab me. Right. Um, but but 90s Spider-Man, because I even though I have a bit of a Superman reputation right now, and I, and I do love Superman, he's my number one guy, and I like podcasting about him, uh, Spider-Man was the one I grew up with. Whenever I was a kid, I had you know the first 20 issues of Spider-Man in collected format and read those bitches like 20, 30 times as a kid, um, and then started buying – when I first was able to go to a comic book store and buy comics, the first thing I went to look for was the latest issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and I got 341 off the shelf
1: oh damnation that's good that's uh several years before wait that's is that what is that that's not maximum carnage what what is
4: that no no no. that's that's about three years before maximum carnage it's actually a trilogy where he's lost his powers
1: Hmm.
4: it's uh right after a big sinister six storyline because i missed the sinister six storyline that happened that summer and uh he loses his powers And um, Felicia, the black cat, is dating Flash Thompson. His marriage with Mary Jane is still really new. Um, And he loses powers for three issues. He gets them back, of course. Cardiac is uh, introduced shortly thereafter. Venom is still a very new character at that point. I think it's his third encounter with Spider-Man. Carnage gets created within a couple of years of that. And so Maximum Carnage is actually where I jumped off the spider boat.
1: It was that bad? It
4: was I was getting a little bit bored and I missed a chapter and I didn't care to make it up. So I just kind of stopped reading. I think I stuck I, I stuck on with Spider-Man 2099 for a little while longer and eventually as most of us have done teenage life just kind of distracted me from comics for about 15 years.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it it'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, actually it's it's kind of funny, you know, I was sort of in the same boat but with um with uh, Superman. I don't know if, if it was the material that changed and then just kind of moved on, if, or, or if it was me, but, you know, it just kind of felt like, the the cho- and I don't want to get old Kevin Smith here, but it, it just kind of felt like the choice was new comics or pussy. <laughs> new comics or pussy. New comics, but And, you know, it, it just kind of felt like, well, you know, ask a 15-year-old what he really wants to do. It and if you
4: get comics hot and wet, they're just not as much fun. Whereas the other
1: Yeah, that only makes it more valuable, right? So, right. Yeah. so anyway, it just kinda felt like this was like the and the other thing was, God knows, Lois and Clark wasn't exactly doing it for me. So it just kinda felt like, you know, you're getting it on all, on all fronts. But oddly enough, though that vintage of Spider-Man, it it took some time, but there were there were a few safe havens after a while. You had Spider Man Adventures and then you had Untold Tales of Spider-Man, and it kind of felt like if what you, if your agenda was just to fucking bypass the Clone Saga and all that weirdness altogether, you can do it, you know. Uh, and it's it's very telling to me that Untold Tales of Spider-Man basically started when the Clone Saga was really going off the rails. And it ended just about the time the Clone Saga ended itself, and so no one's ever going to convince me that there wasn't some higher power at work there, you
4: know. Yeah, and even though I even though I tend to be a proponent of New Fifty Two and I tend to enjoy those comics, if you want to read Superman right now, and you're not a fan of what's going on in his mainstream continuity, you have like five other choices. That are all rather awesome. I, I say five. I pulled that number out of my butt, but there's a Smallville comic. There's the Adventures of Superman comic. There was Superman Family Adventures for a year, which was great, although it was aimed at the younger readers. Um, but there are places to read about Superman that, sure, they're not you know the pre-Infinite Crisis continuity, but they're Superman, and they're not New 52. It's funny because it's, a, it's the Amazing Spider-Man 50 episode. We we, we could talk about Superman because I love yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: okay, well, yeah. Maybe we should save that for another time. But to get it back on topic, this was um. You and I were talking about this a little bit off the air. Don't a- don't ask me which which trade paperback it was, but this was actually reprinted in a trade paperback. It included what I what stands out in my mind is Amazing Fantasy number 15. Um, it not. Not Amazing Spider-Man number three hundred, but the next Venom story after that.
4: Yes, that is very best of Spider-Man, published in nineteen
1: ninety-four. Okay, that sounds that sounds to be about right. And this was one of the ones that was uh, that was uh, reprinted in there. And and basically, to me, do you remember the greatest Batman stories ever told? That was published in like nineteen eighty-nine. Yes, I've read that. Yeah, I don't have it, but I have read it. Right. Well, and it kind of felt like to me this was a rough approximation of that, like same basic concept, right? Sort of take a, a, cross section of the character's history and the kid who collect, or the boy who collected Spider-Man, uh, that was another one that was in there. And there was some, just some really fucking amazing stories in there. And if what you wanted to do was just kind of get, I guess, kind of cut through the ice cream of Spider-Man's, uh, publishing history, you could do a hell of a lot worse than go out and get that particular, uh, trade paperback because it kind of felt like that was sort of, the a to z of what you needed to know not so much about continuity but about the characters or this character i guess and so i it, and it just pains me that i don't have it anymore but anyway that was a um that was a good little tra- And anyway to bring it back on topic that's where i first read this and you know at the time obviously spider-man 2 hadn't even thought about coming out And I thought, wow, this is a this is a really interesting and unique idea. You know, uh, Peter Parker, you know, he's getting it on all sides here. And I could see someone eventually getting to the point where, you know what? Nothing in life is worth this, you know? Right. I'm you know, because at this point, he's really got two options. He can give up being Spider-Man or he can put a gun in his mouth. You know, it's one of the two. And if he puts a gun in his mouth, obviously there's not going to be an an Amazing Spider-Man number 51, so how about we just let him not be Spider-Man for an issue and just see how that plays out. And I just thought, this was a really cool fucking idea. And like you said, it's been kind of revisited several times, not least of which, not to go back off topic, but I think maybe one of the most notable examples that I can think of, of revisiting this story in the most horrifying way possible, it was right before the 1990s clone saga kicked on, where... It was sort of like the reverse of this story where Spider-Man gives up being Peter.
4: Yes, Peter Parker no more.
1: Right, and the hell of it is – look, I realize that you're in the periodicals business and a new issue has got to come out every single month even if you've got nothing to say. Even so, dude, somebody, one person had to give final approval for this story. He had to read the pitch for it and say, you know what? This has got disco potential. Let's print it, you know? That guy needs to be drawn, quartered, tarred, feathered, and <laughs> run the fuck out of town, all right? Because I'm sorry. That is the most inexcusable piece of crap I've ever read. And guys, I collected Image in the 90s.
4: Wow. Is, is, is it bad if I actually have a little, a, a, just a tiny soft spot for Image in the 90s?
1: You know what? For sheer nostalgia, go for it, dude. <laughs> but it, it's, all, it's all style, no substance. And if you accept it's
4: all style, no substance, then, then enjoy it on that level, and that's what I do.
1: Well, it's a Michael Bay movie.
4: It is a Michael Bay movie. And if, if, if Michael Bay didn't grow up reading Image 90s comics, I'll pay somebody 100 bucks, Because I bet you he did.
1: <laughs> well, I don't see how he couldn't have. But yeah, you know, anyway, so – and honestly, just – I'm going to – look, I realize that what I'm about to say has – doesn't have but jack and shit to do with Amazing Spider-Man number 50. This is just one of those little mission statements that I think, you know, everybody needs to get clear on. I will never, ever – bash on somebody for for liking the comics that they like i don't care what comics you're into or what you collect there was a time when it was not especially politically correct to to uh, collect superman right i lived through that era right people looking down their nose at me like wow dude you're buying this really and right. if someone if someone out there is you know they got a boner for 1990s image dude more power to you you know I'm, I'm I would be the last person to, to anyway. So there you have it. So uh, but as it goes for Spider Man,
4: this is this is this is a fun conversation. I do want to say though that um, I I loved the interplay between Peter and Gwen in this issue because each of them is increasingly fascinated by the other, and Peter just won't let himself see that Gwen is totally spreading her life for him. Like one hundred percent right and and he just won't let himself see it. I don't really know why except for of course the whole storytelling reason that they have to build the tension and and let let that you know thing slowly burn out. They can't blow their wad in one issue or they won't have anything for next month. so um it's it's a nice little subplot this uh this story also begins to spell the end for who the man who was an important recurring character, and that's Frederick Foswell. I don't know how much you know about him.
1: Um, I know the name, and, but that's about it. I, I, I couldn't tell you anything.
4: He, in the early Ditko series, uh, there was a story of the big man and the enforcers.
1: Oh, that I remember. Right.
4: Okay. The big man was this big man. You know, it's in the name. And he had uh, this metallic mask face. And he had this huge presence, and he had these three enforcers, and basically all the. He was the kingpin before the kingpin. And at the end of the issue, he unmasked, and he's this little bitty, you know, runt, Frederick Foswell.
1: Right. Okay.
4: He goes to jail. When he gets out, uh, he gets a job at the Bugle, and he begins dressing up as a stool pigeon named Patch so he can get more stories by hanging out in the underworld. And when this story happens, we're led to believe that he's decided to go back to his life of crime and two issues after this, he has been captured by the Kingpin and he gives his life to save the lives of um, J. Jonah Jameson. And I think Spider-Man as well. Hmm. So he, he dies a hero, but he is probably the first and most often forgotten death in Spider-Man's life besides Uncle Ben.
1: Really? There was yeah. nobody in between. As far as I can
4: remember, there was no significant death that was directly tied to the career of Spider Man.
1: Wow. And yet, no
4: one ever mentions Frederick Foswell. <laughs> I mean, sure, Gwen Stacy and Captain Stacy, they were the next big ones. But, you know, Frederick Foswell was kind of important at the time.
1: Okay. All right. I'll, I'll ride with that. All right. That's okay. I didn't know. Uh, I mean, I knew you knew your Spider Man stuff, but wow, talk about sending me to school. He's
4: later reincarnated in the post-crisis Superman world as Sam Foswell, who works for the other newspaper.
1: I was going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it, dude, you, you beat me to it, dude. That's good. But wow. Now, this, this actually leads into something, though, I did want to ask you about. Um, every time I've read this, um, specifically page 13, right? Is this a reveal of the Kingpin? Is this the first time he's been seen, or like his face? I mean, uh, like the rest of the time, like before this, he was maybe like a shadowy figure that we never really saw, or is this? Um,
4: actually, page 10 is the first appearance of the Kingpin. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, this is Kingpin's first appearance issue.
1: Uh, okay. So, well, all right. Yeah, fair enough. All right. We'll so, fifty two. to fifty-two
4: is his first storyline,
1: and of course, you
4: know, modern readers always aso- associate the Kingpin with Daredevil. But before Frank Miller, the Kingpin was always a Spider-Man villain,
1: right? And I, and my understanding is not really much of a Spider-Man villain. He was just sort of there, but he didn't really accomplish a whole lot. It actually, Frank Miller is the one that actually put him on the map of all of all people. So, yeah, that was. Uh,
4: if there's a printer that goes off in the background, is that going to bother us too much?
1: Oh, I can mute your channel. Don't worry about it.
4: Okay, you have a channel. You have a split. Okay, okay. My daughter has to print something.
1: Okay. Um. Okay. Cool. Well, actually, you know what? I mean, we've been going for a while now. I mean, I probably got what I need. If if it's easier just to just to bail, I mean, we can we can go ahead and do that
4: but I was having fun.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, if you want to keep going, we can, it's just, I don't, you know, you know it's
4: cool. Um, it's whatever you want to do. She's going to print. Uh, my wife just got home about three minutes ago, so it would probably be beneficial if I did.
1: All right, cool. Uh, and we're at about the 30 minute mark anyway, so that's, that's fine.
4: Okay. Hey, Lily, can you give us two minutes to wrap up our thing? <laughs>
1: okay. All right. All right. So, uh, that's basically everything that I had for uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 50 uh, for as little as we talked about. It, but it's still it, it was a lot of fun. And, um, John, really, I do appreciate you taking the time you know, uh, to, uh, to jump in on this and uh, uh, shoot the breeze with me for my 50th episode.
4: Hey, it's always been Congratulations on making 50 episodes. I have yet to do that.
1: Well, I don't Like, cumulative, you probably have put out 50 episodes of all of <laughs> your different podcasts. Like,
4: Actually, New 52 Adventures is at 48 right now is the one I'm working on with Supergirl, so it will hit 50 soon. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man Classics got to like 30-something, 36 or 37, and my Golden Age Shipman is in the 30s as well. So I can't quite seem to get there, But um, but yeah, you hit 50 before I did.
1: <laughs> well, I chalk it up to uh, beginner's luck, right? I'm sure if I ever start another podcast, it's going three episodes. That's it. So, right, all right. Well,
4: well can I uh, can I yak about my stuff before I go?
1: Absolutely, yeah. That's actually going to be the next thing I went that I went into.
4: Okay. Well, never one to deny an, effort, uh, an opportunity to pit myself. Let me just say that the New 52 Adventures of Superman is over at new 52 superman.libsen.com, where I'm looking at all of the current adventures of the Superman family of titles as they are published in their trade format. Over at Avengers Inspirations, my daughter Lily, who is 12, she and I look at all of the early issues of Avengers characters, uh, their solo titles and the team book itself once we get there. And golden age superman is a glacially progressing podcast but one i enjoy doing when i can over at golden the the cod topic there is not exactly secret i look at the early adventures of the man of steel and coming in june starting on june 14th the star wars saga cast mm. at the star so that is where i in a sort of short fire format, not too much unlike trying to is format here, just trying to you know crank out quick episodes. I'm looking at any Star Wars story that appeals to me. Uh, lately, I've been just going through the early Marvel issues and uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye and the early stuff. But uh, if I get bored with that, I may jump to the 90s or whatever. So, me talking about Star Wars and kind of exploring the expanded universe and podcasting about it as I as I go.
1: Sounds sounds great. Can't wait to listen to it. So, all right. Well, then uh, that's basically it for this segment. Going to be right back after these messages.
4: After these messages,
0: right back.
4: to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman, available on iTunes and at GoldenAgeSuperman. dot Com. Every legend has a beginning.
1: Okay, we're back now, continuing my 50th episode, Epic Milestone Anniversary Retrospective Extravaganza. This time I've got a totally new guest for more awesome funny book talk. Some of you know him as the other guy on the Short Box sh- Showcase. Others of you know him as the host of the Quarter Bin podcast, where even bad comics are a bargain and good ones are a steal. And yes, some of you know him as the whip-cracking professor who fails you on every assignment you turn in, even when it might have deserved at least a C or something. Yes, I speak of the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, the fink, the fraud, the fractious foister of fulsome folly, the fearsome funster himself, Professor Allen. How are you, sir? After that... I'm not sure. I'm going to say awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And I got to tell you, dude, of all of the guests I've ever had on this show, you're one of them. No doubt about that. (laughs) Right back at you, buddy.
3: (laughs) Of of all the shows I've guested on, this is one of them.
1: (laughs) And, you know, I got to tell you, I always like having you on the show. Um, Number one, you tend to bring a very scholarly and analytical approach to things, and that's also i don't know it's just it's always a different perspective i I guess is what i'm saying and that's you know i really do appreciate you uh taking the time to join me today
3: well i'm 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 not sure who your you know previous guests on this episode have been but i agree they were kind (laughs) of (laughs) dummies that that's what you're getting at right
1: Oh, I don't know as I'd go that far. Uh, many of them are actually nice guys. Uh, now, I don't know if the di- if their local district attorney's offices are necessarily going to completely agree with that, but I think they're nice guys, just a little bit misunderstood, especially when it comes to misunderstandings at banks and things like that. You know, it happens. It happens to the best of us.
3: Bars, liquor stores, whatever.
1: Yeah, it's all the same. So, well... <sighs> I'm, I'm kind of curious about something. Before we even get into the issue that you and I are going to be talking about, one of the things I was sort of wondering about is, am I depriving the Quarterbin podcast of anything here? I mean, did you obtain uh, today's comic book from the Quarterbin?
3: Not at all. This is the one that I have had for nearly 33 years, probably since approximately September 1981.
1: So you got this this uh, mystery comic off the shelf did you i am guessing so
3: it's possible i got it out of a uh, you know at a at, at a con a few years after that mm. uh, but it is part of a long long run that i have
1: of this title i see and uh, to be specific exactly what are we going to be talking about today i am bringing to the table iron man 150
3: from september 1981 woohoo I'm, I'm sorry, it's the special, double-sized, 150th anniversary issue of the Invincible Iron Man. I oh, got was that, that co- off the cover.
1: Yeah, I was going to correct you on that. Awesome. I mean, that cover, man, they really uh, tried to hype up the fact that this was the 150th issue. It didn't get lost. <laughs> um, awesome. Now, two things uh, that I want to say here before we get into our discussion. To start with, this is the second Marvel comic that I've talked about so far in this show. But I guess apart from that, number two... It's funny that you chose this issue, because this is one of the very few issues of Iron Man that I've ever read. I mean, I've never been you know, a big Iron Man expert, so if you'd chosen just—I'm I'm not kidding—just about any other issue of uh, of the run, I don't think I'd have as much to say, but it, but being as it was this particular one, I actually do have a little something-something to contribute here, so I just thought you might get a little kick out of that.
3: All right. No. <laughs> I, I, I did look at a few other potential titles from some of my favorite series, uh, some things I've talked about on the Quarterbin podcast like John Sable or something like that. Or I've thought of Warlord or Mike Grell, were, uh, Warlord or Green Arrow mm-hmm. were others from that era. All three of those do have Mike Grell in common as the as – who's my favorite comics creator. But I was looking at those 50th issues, and none of them really stood out as great issues. I, I, I did think about picking the John Sable. I was like sort of pumping up that that title. Uh, but Mike Grell had stopped drawing it by the time they got to 50. So it was his story, but the visuals you know, weren't quite as striking as they were. So I just went with the parameters of what you actually asked for, mm-hmm. which was my favorite issue of anything with a 50 in it. And Iron Man, again, it's not in my very favorite uh, books. It's probably in the top ten, but Iron Man 150 is one of my absolute favorite single issues. So I'm glad you had it available. <laughs> well, me too. So um,
1: you want to get into the synopsis here?
3: Yeah, well, let me actually talk just a little bit about this. This is the second part of a two-part story, and it is a double-sized issue, so it's more like the final two-thirds of a two-part story. Mm-hmm. And, and in context, uh, 149 and 150 – were popular enough and well-regarded enough that it generated a sequel eight years later. 249 and 250 oh, lord! Are, are direct sequels to 149 and 150. So actually, two, 250 was also uh, uh, one that I considered, but it's just hard to beat the cover image on 150 of Doom versus Iron Man going head-to-head, toe-to-toe. So I... I I I went with this one, and these four issues, 149, 150, 249, 250, are so popular and resonant that another 20 years later, 27 years after this issue, uh, David Michelinie revisited the story with a four-issue mini, Iron Man Legacy of Doom. So depending how you want to look at it, issue 150 can be considered part one of a two-part story, part one of a four-part story. Or part – or part two of a four-part story or part two of an eight-part story. Good lord. Uh, And and that eight-part story told over more than a quarter decade, uh, all by Michelini. Great, great stuff. And to me, what, what makes these stories work, at least in my mind, so awesome is that they bring together some of my favorite things. This is set in the Arthurian era of Camelot, which I'm a sucker for. Uh, Iron Man is one of my top Marvel characters, and my single favorite character in all of comic books is Victor Von Doom, the glorious president for life of the realm of Latveria. Because I figure if you, have, if you have one election, that's mm-hmm. enough. I mean, if you get it right, I think that's enough. <laughs> I'm almost certain he won with well over
1: 99% of the uh, – of the popular vote. Well, that's one of those things when the public really has spoken, you know. Exactly. I got to tell you, you know, this is why they call you Professor Allen, because good night, sir. I had no idea this story was had. I don't. Basically, it's got so, so many it's, sequels. It, yeah, it's
3: got it's it's got legs, and there are specific plot points that are you know, mentioned in this story that do crop up in those later. Um, in those later uh, stories, so you know, uh, then that, that's the I think sign of, of of good writing. There was stuff in here that didn't have to be followed up on, not you know cliffhanger sort of stuff. I mean, this story definitely ends here, but looking back, there was still stuff that could uh, that could have been mined uh, years later.
1: And this is that's actually one of the reasons why I've got such a respect for David Micalini as a writer. I mean, I honestly don't know. How many other writers there are in the in the game, who could have who could see literally decades worth of stories off of what? Let's face it, what by all rights really should have been a simple two part story designed to, you know, fill up a comic rack for the months that it was out, and then that's it. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I've always respected the guy, but man, my respect for him just went through the frickin' roof the minute you told me all that stuff. Wow, <laughs> and 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 like I said, it's not
3: dangling plot threads either. Mm-mm you know it's not stuff that you wish had been covered uh, in this in in this issue and and I, to me one, one of the strengths of this also uh, and of this book sort of is that it represents uh, to me a context for the Marvel universe and i'm generally more of a dc fanboy than a marvel zombie but there's something about marvel's sense of geography that gives them Uh, opportunity to tell stories like this. Because in in DC it is so weird how villains are linked directly to their hero Mm -hmm. and both seem to be weirdly held in place magnetically to a particular city, right? So Flash pretty much hangs out in Central City and, you know, Captain Cole doesn't seem to be able to leave the city limits either. You know, similar for the the penguin in Gotham or the parasite in Metropolis. So the heroes hardly ever face someone else's villain.
1: Mm-hmm. You
3: know, maybe in a crossover, Justice League, something like that. So you know, the Joker doesn't take on the Flash or Cheetah never battles Green Arrow or, or, or whatever. But the way that Marvel has constructed their geography, their shared universe, pretty much everybody's in New York City. So the villains and the heroes cross each other's paths regularly. So it makes sense that Someone like the Kingpin can migrate from being a Spidey villain to a Daredevil villain, or in this case, for Doctor Doom to cross paths with Iron Man. It just—it fits. It makes sense. There's there's a logic to it.
1: Right. I agree, and honestly, I don't know that if I. That I ever would have thought to put it in those terms, but you know, I'm damned if you're not if you're not right on point there. So, and if right. if,
3: if you think about it, I mean, Doom and Iron Man are really similar characters. They're both science and technology guys. Doom has some gypsy magic thrown in. Both have armor, you know, energy blasts, and all that. There are a lot of parallels. So, uh, when they battle each other, even though they're not each other's enemy, I think it works. There's there, there's some logic to it.
1: So, I agree. I agree.
3: So Iron Man 150, Nightmare, that's with a K, because they're in Camelot time, so K'Nightmare, was written by David Michelinie with art by J.R.J.R. and Bob Layton. And This does pick up exactly where 149 ended, Doom's time machine hurtling him and Iron Man into the past. They assume for a second it was just some huge explosion in the lab, and they believe they've been, you know, thrown out onto Doom's courtyard. Only after looking around does Iron Iron Man stop the fight, because of course they're fighting, to realize that they've come a little further than that. They are, in fact, in Camelot. Now, Dr. Doom actually knows what happened. His assistant sent the pair into the past. The uh, time platform or time cube or whatever it was at the time had been set for Camelot because Doom wanted to to head there to consult with the great sorceress Morgana Le Fay. Now, thanks to these events, he arrived a little earlier than he intended and much more permanent uh, seeming state than he had planned. So they haven't been there very long where they're confronted by the guards who take them prisoners because they're to be judged by King Arthur as interlopers or trespassers. Iron Man is quick to go into appeasement mode and demonstrate some of his armor's abilities. Doom is less forthcoming, pointing out that in his homeland, he is the king, and he's not going to lower himself to perform parlor tricks like old Shellhead does. <laughs> they are kept as permanent guests for the time being, but they're not technically prisoners, so King Arthur sends each man a, a female companion for the duration of their stay, of course, Tony Stark has a particular sense of priorities and decides to spend his favorite type of uh, quality time with Eleonora, a woman who's what? A thousand years younger than he is? Wow. Now, now on the other hand, Doom, thinking with, ac- thinking with his actual you know brain, uses his companion girl for information. So, you know, pumping her in a little bit different way. And, uh. I'm
1: here. I mean, was about to, you know, <laughs> praise you and congratulate you for not using a oh, euphemism. Come I
3: had, uh, that one was just sitting there.
1: It, okay, well, fair enough. <laughs> so he
3: gets information about Morgana Le whereabouts. And once that knowledge is obtained, he immediately leaves the castle, locates her castle, and offers his services to the dark sorceress. Now, Doom explains to her. And to us as readers, that he's been visiting great magicians throughout time with one sole purpose, to free his mother from the prisons of hell, which, as mythic quests go, is pretty bold and for Doom is surprisingly personal. She was a magnificent woman, he tells her. He explains that every year on Midsummer's Eve, Doom himself battles the demons of hell using his mother's own spells. With hopes of freeing her spirit from its infernal confinement. And each year I failed. So the sorceress Morgana Le Fay strikes a bargain with Doom. She will help him if he will lead her undead soldiers in final battle with King Arthur. Doom readily agrees. And so the battle is begun. The existing power structure, the establishment, the man, if you will, of King Arthur and Iron Man versus Morgana Le Fay's undead army led by the righteously angry hero of the people, Dr. <laughs> Doom. If you want to, if, if, I, I, I just say, and Tony Stark is a one percenter just for whatever that's worth. I'm just throwing that out.
1: Yes, he is.
3: <laughs> the, the battle rages until Tony figures something out. The only way to truly stop undead soldiers is to stop them at the source, Lefay herself. While the battle goes on, he flees and makes his way to her castle. Doom reaches the reasonable conclusion that Iron Man is fleeing like a coward. But he's actually going to battle the sorceress.
1: And it should be understood that – I think this is the bodyguard era of Iron Man. It's not generally exactly. known that it's Tony That's Stark. That's
3: right. That's right, which is why I love uh, throughout this – uh, the story, and even into the in, into the sequels, uh, Doom simply refers to him as Lackey, right? Meaning he is Tony Stark's lackey, right? Which I love. Me too. Uh, so uh, uh, Iron Man and Morgana Lefay battle. It's a fight between science and sorcery. And in the end, since I double checked, the title of the book is Iron Man. Iron Man does defeat Morgana, but she vows revenge. Do not think you've escaped my wrath, for I shall study, I shall grow. I shall wreak horrible vengeance on you when I return in a hundred issues. Okay, she doesn't say that, but it's implied. <laughs> it's implied. But again, I mean, without the sequel, that line is great, right? It's a threat of revenge. But that's one of those things in the sequel stories. It is, uh, it is Morgana, who is the, uh, the impetus – uh, for those return battles uh, down the road. Uh, meanwhile, back at the battlefield, the undead soldiers become, well, dead again. And Doom lo- Doom knows now that Le Fay has been defeated and his chance of rescuing his tormented mother has once again slipped from his grasp. And that chance to rescue her is gone forever. In a rage, he speeds over to the castle and busts through the wall, Kool-Aid Man style, shouting, Where is she? You heard me, lackey. There it is. You heard me, lackey. Where have you taken the Sorceress Le Fay? Iron Man actually does talk some sense into Doom and admits that there's no reason for him to stay in Camelot anymore. Uh, They decide the time is right to return to their own lands, and he reveals his plan to Iron Man. It is possible that they can return to the present, that would be 1981, But only with their combined geniuses and cannibalizing each other's armored suits for parts and circuitry and electronics that they can create a device that might warp time around them. So they realize the only way they will get home is to work together. Let that be a lesson to you, young readers. The two minds work together all through the night the majestic leader of Latveria and their red and gold lackey fella. By dawn, they've developed an elaborate construction wired into both of their armored suits for power. They make a truce that if the device should happen to work, they will allow each other to go their own ways. When the final connection is made, time ripples around them and they find themselves back in 1981. Their jury rigged machine is then reduced to molten slag around them, Doom leaves with a remark, The adventure is finished, and I shall keep my word. Though I do hope you realize, Avenger, that we will meet again in a hundred issues. Okay, that part's implied. He doesn't say it, but it's implied. <laughs> Iron Man <laughs> simply says, I'll be waiting. Then the true travelers turn and walk down opposite slopes, each beginning the final leg of his long journey home. <sighs>
1: This was a great frickin' issue, and maybe this is going backwards to say it, but towards the very end, as uh, Doom and Iron Man are working on their special time traveling whos he whats this gizmo there's sort of an unspoken mutual admiration society going on where each of them has to kind of admit to himself that the other really knows his stuff when it comes to machinery and circuitry and all this kind of stuff. Exactly. You have
3: so I, I wonder, with Doom's background, if if he would have let, you know, if if it were him and Reed, would he have let Reed? You know, would he given Reed enough respect to work with him, you know, or or if their sort of personal animosity would have been enough, uh, you know, to keep that from happening? But but he doesn't have that you know, personal history with Iron Man. Um. So yeah, I mean, there is that sense of you know between the two of us. I mean there's, a, there's an uh, admission on both of their parts of humility or sense of futility. You know, it's like I, ne- neither one of them can do it on their own, that they, uh, that they do have to work together.
1: Right. And um, and I guess you know the proof is in the pudding. I mean Iron Man didn't build that. Somebody else made it happen. Yeah. But like a lot of people, I tend to view superheroes as modern myth, not modern mythology because that's right. something else. But no, I do view them as modern myth. So mixing modern myth and medieval myth makes for a Mary Magnus. Ancient myth <laughs> serving as the history for modern myth. I mean, if you think about it, that really is an inspired freaking idea. Iron Man isn't the first or only uh, comic book character to ever do that. You know, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But I guess my, my point is, is that I love it when – this kind of stuff pops up in comics because it feels authentic to the material. It feels right. honest. I mean I guess to put it in – to make a comparison, it would be like Green Arrow getting tossed back in time and encountering Robin Hood or sure. Superman going back right. in time and meeting Zeus or Atlas or Hercules. Right. Right. And it's the same type of thing. So I, that part of it works so perfectly for me. Loved it.
3: Yeah, I, 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 I think it works for these characters in in particular, because I'm, I'm certainly, you know, at some point, somewhere along the line, the or editorial or someone said, you know, we have two characters who are men in suits of armor. You know, Iron Man and Doctor Doom are characters in suits of armor. Let's put them back in suits of armor time. You know, they are, you know, the, the closest thing that, uh, that Marvel has to knights you know, in that sense. Right. So I think, you know pitting those two characters together, you know, it just, it just fits this time period. Like you said, a green arrow in in the time of Robin Hood would just fit perfectly.
1: Right, and it was just, a, I think, an incredibly inspired idea. This is one of those, you know, a lot of times you can, especially, you know, this kind of late Bronze Age type stuff, you know, you can just, usually you can just read stories like this, you know, it was good, you move on to whatever's next. But every now and then, you know, you come across a story that, you kind of want to know the behind the scenes stuff about you know and i'm like yeah yeah I, i'm getting to just a, a stage in my fandom where honestly ignorance is bliss you know the <laughs> less i know about what happens behind the scenes the happier i tend to be but for stuff like this i would love to know what the creative seed for this was i mean did this come from jim Jim Shooter, or is this something, you know, uh, Michelini and Layton, and, you know, that they were, you know, spitballing between each other, did John Romita Jr. just come in the office one day and say, hey, guys, I've got this wacky idea. It's going to sound crazy, but hear me out, you know? I mean, where did this, because this, I mean, it's one, I, I think it's the mark of a great writer whenever he can tell a story that is so good and so innovative, but at the same time, you're sitting here reading it, and you're thinking, why the hell didn't I think of this? This is so this awful. Is obvious.
3: Right? Yeah. This is obvious, right? This is obvious, you know, I mean, Doom himself is a is a character in armor who lives in a castle. Iron Man is a man in you know, is a man in armor who lives in Avengers Mansion. You no, know, it's not that big a stretch. Like and 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 like you said, as soon as they do it, it's a oh, I gotcha, of course. Hmm. But up until this point, it hadn't been done.
1: Yeah. And then the real linchpin to all of this. I mean, they could have gone back in time anywhere. And on that the the fact that they had to meet King Arthur, a literal king meet, meeting a mythical king, and then you can in a kind of sense argue that Tony Stark uh, in his own way, we don't right. uh, from an I guess an, a very American sensibility, he's about as close to a king as we can ever really have. Right. And all of them are sort of in their own way royalty and how each of them react to this really let's face it really freaking unexpected turn of <laughs> yeah. events. Yeah. I don't think anybody woke up that morning expecting that this is where things were going to go, and King Arthur is basically guarded. He's cautious. He wants to do what's right for his people, but at the same time, he doesn't. He also doesn't want to kill what could be, let's face it, totally innocent men or at least basically drag himself into a conflict he's got not, no stake in either way. Right. Doctor Doom, he's determined to throw his balls around everywhere he goes. This is no exception. I mean, you know, he I, and I just love the chutzpah of that. You know, him and King Arthur's court saying, "Hey, dude, eat me, All right? Eat, I, dude, you, I got your fucking chewy right here, you know," and you know stuff like that. And then you've got Tony Stark, not exactly being diplomatic, but at the same time not wanting to kick up trouble where there doesn't need to be some.
3: I mean, but I mean, I think Tony, in in his background, I mean, he at least understands. The concept of negotiation, mm-hmm. you, know, for the, you know, from the business perspective, mm-hmm. you know, bringing you know, uh, bringing that background, so he understands diplomacy as it as it occurs, at least in the business world, in terms of of meeting it and, and and negotiation. Right. And and I'm a huge fan of Doctor Doom. You know, I've, I've sh- showed up on a number of episodes of the Fantasticast uh, talking about uh, talking about Doctor Doom, and, and to me. He works best, and I mean this seriously—not in my role as you know, Latvian ambassador, uh, but as a comics reader. To me, Doctor Doom is an anti-hero. He is not a villain, and to me, when he is an anti-hero, which I think is basically how he's portrayed here, uh, he is um, at his at his best. I think the the backstory that Stan and Jack gave him way back in. FF Annual Number Two lays that groundwork, and when he's written in that in that manner, uh, his stories have the potential to reach great dramatic heights. And and then throwing in this motivation of the lost mother, to me, it's a really personal. That, that intensely personal nature of his quest here is really striking. I just think it's a great story.
1: All right. Well, and. Uh- if you wouldn't mind indulging me on something, think of this as an opportunity to educate me, Professor. Um, keep in mind, I am not—I I am not really a, a Marvel guy by any stretch, and there are—you know—I'd like to think I'm reasonably conversant with, I guess, the basics, you know, the fundamentals of the Marvel universe. But I am not the guy to ask about, you know, ins and outs and all that. I'm
3: a stuff. fan. I'm a fan,
1: not an expert. Oh, okay, well, all the same. But take a shot. Uh, Ten bucks says you probably know more about it than I do. This whole, um, I don't know, Mrs. Doom, uh, uh, Mommy Doom thing—is uh, this new for Doctor no. Doom as of this uh, issue, or is that something these, that goes back?
3: Uh, the specific detail of her being in hell—I do not know where that came from. But in that, in that, uh, the origin—he I mean, he had appeared, you know, three or four times battling, battling the FF. Uh, but they basically gave all of Fantastic Four Annual 2, so back in, I don't know, 63 or 64, whatever it would have been, was devoted to, to Doom, including his origin story. And his, his origin story of his mom as a sorceress, as the gypsy sorceress, that has been there from the beginning. Uh, but in, 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 in terms of her uh, being in hell mm-hmm. and that fight… This this annual fight he has. I don't know if that's new information in this story or not. Oh, I see.
1: All right. Well, that's oh, well. Either way, I mean, clearly you, you you still know more about it than I do. So uh, kudos to you. <laughs> I don't know. All in all, I just I, I really dug you know the writing on this book. As I you know, as I've said before, I've got the utmost respect for David michelini as a storyteller. And um, this this issue is a uh, it it's. I'm almost tempted to, to put this out there as prosecutions exhibit A for why. Uh, this is, the, I mean, the creativity almost leaks off the page at, at some points, you know? And honestly, how many writers are there out there who can introduce, enhance, by which I guess I mean, you know, develop, build up, whatever, and then eliminate all in one fell swoop a zombie fucking apocalypse, all in one go? <laughs> and when you think about it, that's not even the central point of this issue. How many people do you know of that? I'm out of I'm out of serious loss, dude. I can't think of all that many, you know, who can pull something like that off. So kudos to you, Mister Metalining.
3: Uh, I mean, looking at books from this era, and and a lot of the the books I talk about on the Quarter Bin, uh podcast are from late Bronze Age, and then in in into the 90s and, and late 90s as as well. But you know, picking up books like the Micronauts or ROM or whatever it is from the early 80s. I I love them because they're so terrifically dense. But it's not dense, let's be honest, in the silly Stan Lee way mm-hmm. of of the mid nineteen sixties. Yeah. You know, it's it's dense in a serious I mean, almost literary way. And and yet it's not the late, you know, two thousands to two thousand fourteen. Um you know, decompress storytelling where this would be, you know, an an eight issue miniseries.
1: Oh, without question, yeah. You
3: know, and 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 you can make that joke about almost any issue of any comic from the late seventies into the early early to mid to late eighties that you know today this would be four you know four issues easy. There is so much here, and and I do not mind taking time to read my comics. I would prefer that. Then finishing it up in you know nine minutes.
1: Especially whenever uh, they're just about three ninety nine across the board, with no guarantee that that's as high as it's going to go. And anyway, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess what uh, you know in the final analysis. I really don't think you could have picked a better story and I'm not just saying that cuz I've already read this one in the past. This is one of the few that I have. <laughs> this is uh you know basically from first page to last, this was a this was a phenomenal choice on your part and kudos to you. Congratulations for an excellent choice. This was a great comic.
3: <laughs> well, I am looking forward to hearing what the other uh what the other minions, what the other lackeys of your empire have selected.
1: Vassals, we call them vassals.
3: <laughs> That is so politically correct of you.
1: Oh, well, you know, I'd like to think I'm a progressive uh, dictator. So, <laughs> so why don't you tell everybody where they can find you?
3: Uh, our shows are at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Relatively Geeky Podcast dot dot com, or you can search that in iTunes. And it's my show, the Quarter Bin Podcast, where I talk about my favorite types of comic books, cheap comic books, not those. Three ninety-nine issues, or as I say in in one of the promos, those four-dollar issues that you can read in four minutes.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But uh, so talk about those. Uh, my daughter Emily has a solo show called "Uncovering the Bronze Age," which is unspeakably Where, cool, by the way. Yeah, I I I I'm enjoying listening to that show. Um, and that one she produces all on her own, so I don't even. Uh, 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 when I hear the episode is when I hear the episode <laughs> for the f- <laughs> for the first time uh, and then together uh, we do a show uh, the short box showcase where we try to talk more about topics in comic books than talk about specific issues though of course we, we do that as well but we'll talk about the concept of the retcon or the concept of sidekicks or something like that
1: right okay alright well I just uh I guess as far as listener feedback is concerned, whatever this is worth to you, what I like is that, basically, as you say, or at least imply, each of those shows has its own specific identity, but the fact that it's all under the umbrella of the relatively geeky network, I mean, it's basically the Professor Allen and family sort of point of view on comics. And, you know, I guess my hat is off for having such three, like three, I guess so... I Three. You could say uh,
3: I, I, iconic, awesome. Well, I was going to say so. I, I'm not sure where you're going for. Just if identifiable if that helps, if that helps. <laughs> I, identifiable. Okay, that's okay.
1: You know, everything has its own. Because you know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, um, I've heard, none of them are on the Two True Freaks network, of course. But I've heard people that basically do multiple podcasts, and what ends up happening is that there's a sense of kind of sameness to them all. That none of them really have their own individual identity and the thing is topics that you discuss on the short box showcase aren't likely to pop up on the quarter bin right. and, and verse visa, you know and then of course um, uncovering the bronze age that's just its own unique thing all by itself because it's you know completely uh, it doesn't even involve you so all around I you know I think it's tricky enough to start off one podcast that has instantly identifiable characteristics to it, to do three of them basically all at once. My hat is off, sir. Dude, you killed it. So uh, awesome, phenomenal job. I appreciate that, sir. All right. All right, well, that's basically it for this segment. I'm going to go ahead and and, um, say goodbye to Professor Allen. I'm going to play some promos, and I'll be right back after these messages. We are out.
3: are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at Relatively Geeky Podcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny.
1: Okay, I'm back now, continuing my 50th episode, Epic Milestone Anniversary Retrospective Spectacular Extravaganza. Nope, we're not finished yet. Still plenty more to come. Joining me for this segment is Two True Freaks co host and former Wheel of Fortune contestant, Mr. Chris Honeywell. How are you, sir? Welcome back.
5: I'll take an F, Trentus. <laughs>
1: Well, I don't know. When it comes to time management lately, I feels like that's what I deserve, an F. <laughs> kind of peel back the curtain here a little bit. Um, I didn't really have a chance. This is the, uh, I hope, the only uh, comic book in this entire episode that I, or for that matter, my entire show, that I ever have to say this about. But I got to plead guilty about something. The sad truth of the matter is that about a week ago-ish from when... Uh, Chris and I are recording this episode right now he was very loud and clear as to which comic it was he that he wanted to discuss and through no fault of Chris's it's completely not his fault I was not able to read this comic book prior to he and I sitting down but in this case I'm thinking that may actually work out for the better for reasons that may become obvious in just a bit but i gotta i gotta say just some things have been happening and i regrettably Mia culpa was not able to read this comic book uh, prior to recording this show it's just i'm coming down on deadlines of my own and so that's pretty much the reason for that so anyway that little bit of uh, confession out of the way chris what comic book are we talk or i guess are you <laughs> talking <laughs> about tonight Well, we'll be talking
5: about it, and I'm hoping... Well, you've got it in front of you, anyway. You've got a way to look at it, so we can... By the time I'm done doing my synopsis, we can have a... You could be familiar with its storybook style, I guess. Sure. Although my synopsis doesn't go page by page, but it'll... Yeah, yeah, it gets a general idea. This is uh, Swamp Thing number 50. Ooh! From uh, 1986, which was... I'm trying to remember. I guess DC's anniversary.
1: I believe so. Yeah, there was. I think that was their fiftieth.
5: It would. It would have to be around like fifty or seventy-five or something like that. I don't know. Right now, there's there's hundreds of people screaming at their at their iPod.
1: Well, I, oh, no, I take it back. No, this would have to be their fiftieth because Superman's fiftieth was was in 1988. So we can pretty well okay. date it from that. Yeah. So uh, it's at least 50, and I feel confident saying it was 50. So, at the time.
5: And this is one of my favorite comics of all time. I sort of went through my... Because I, I was thinking, what comics do I have that I actually have owned up to 50, that I've read up to 50? And it was a pretty slim selection, like Star Wars, Marvel Star Wars, and that's already been covered on two true freaks walking dead number 50 already been covered on two, two freaks
1: well and the other uh, thing is I don't I, as much as I like walking dead or liked it anyway I don't know that there's anything especially significant about their 50th issue
5: yeah no 48 was the big one in that time period 50 they, they sort of tricked you on 50 you thought something was coming on 50 and he sucker punched you two issues early yeah um, and then I have the Simpsons comics up to number one hundred, but Simpsons comics number fifty is eighty-eight pages long, or something like that, and has probably like ten different stories in it, and would just be ridiculous. And it wasn't one that I'm especially attached to. And then, duh, what? I could, uh, how could I not have remembered? I I got into my swamp thing stack. And, and realized, oh, yes, Swamp Thing number 50 was, you know, right in the middle of the Alan Moore era of Swamp Thing, which someday Scott and I are going to have to work through this because reading reading this for this episode has got I, I could not not read the next episode or issue. And then it just kept going after that till after like three or four issues after this, I stopped and said, All right, I'm going to go right back to the beginning, to the anatomy lesson, and just read this all the way through again.
1: And, you know, not to change the uh, subject, but, you know, one of the – I'm actually surprised, and maybe I shouldn't be, but I was actually really surprised that you chose this when, as far as I remember, why the last man, number 50, was a serious punch in the balls –
5: Oh, I, you know, I did not even think of that. Really? I did not even think of that. I
1: love that series. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's a really awesome. In fact, you know, and now we are straying off topic. We're going to get back on topic in just a, just a <laughs> second, I promise. But the um, I was not aware of uh, Chris's fandom or appreciation or what have you of uh, Why the Last Man before I did my show about Why the Last Man. Had I known in advance, I might have actually wanted him to jump in on that because, I mean, it's the perfect entry point. It starts off with, why the last man? Number one through number four or five or something like that. And, mm-hmm. it you know, again, it's a totally, re- you know, in retrospect, if, you know, if I had it all again. But it's it, it would have been, I think, a really kind of cool thing for you and I to talk about. And I have no idea when I'll cover the next storyline in there. But it would have been okay. kind of fucking cool to have you in there, you know, for that first one. And then when I do the second one, whenever that is, bring you back for that one, you know. So
5: well, that episode's actually one of the ones I've got in my folder on my list of like the first, you know, ones that I got to listen to because that that and Walking Dead were sort of what brought me back into comic books. But I, I started following both of them. I had to catch up on both of them with a couple trades. And then started following them issue by issue, still following Walking Dead and, and Why The Last Man till it ended. Mm-hmm. And they both were sort of cut from the same cloth of a continuing storyline. Why The Last Man I thought was a little more, you know, commercial, comic booky than uh The Walking Dead, but they had a lot of um similar similar themes in them and, and similar characters, you know, to very strong black female mm. ass kickers yeah. dri- driving both storylines. Hmm.
1: You know, that actually did not think uh, – I never uh, closed the loop on that one. Uh, <clears throat> I guess I – that – dude, good catch. <laughs> very good catch. But that's why The Last that's, Man. Now, yeah. to go back to uh, Swamp Thing number 50, which is – you know, what we're actually here to talk about, and hopefully we haven't bored the listeners, but um, for uh, Swamp Thing number 50, what do you got?
5: All right, would you like to hear my uh, synopsis? I would love to. All right, I'm going to do a a uh, Two True Freaks comic monthly Monday style synopsis. Not, my, not a get Chris to read a goddamn comic style, but, you know, um, just a general Swamp Thing number 50. It was uh, from July 1986 twenty five cover price, because this was a double-sized issue. <laughs> um, covered by uh, Steve Bissett and John Totleben. Totalben? I'm guessing it's pronounced. Alan Moore, the writer. Um, Karen Berger, editor. Steve Bissett, Rick Veitch, and John Totleben. Art, my, one of my favorite art teams of all time, I would have to say. Tatiana Wood is the colorist, and John Costanza, the letterist. All right, so Cain uh, and Abel from House of Mystery sort of frame another mystical Alan Moore end-of-existence story. Uh, something huge, primal, and evil is surfacing in the in-between dimensions, and the forces of good and evil are poised to fight against it. Swamp Thing has teamed up with Dead Man, the Phantom Stranger, Etrigan, the rhyming demon, the specter, and Dr. Fate, uh, along with various orb-like angel creatures and other otherworldly folks. And uh, meanwhile, in, in the Earth dimension, John Constantine is organizing a super seance with Zatanna, Zatanna's daughter, Sargon, and uh, Mento with his Mento helmet to help bolster the forces of good. Um, which they they do, but at the cost of Zatanna and Sargon spontaneously combusting, and Mento pretty much ends up getting his brain fried for his efforts. I hate it when that happens. It sucks. And so meanwhile, in Spiritland, the evil thing, very Lovecraftian thing, is is emerging and absorbing everybody that attacks it first it absorbs etrigan the demon and from a conversation with it 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 learns fatalism and it spits him back out then it absorbs dr fate and then it it, and its conversation with dr fate teaches it contempt and it spits him out and then it eats the specter and uh gains a sense of vengeance before spitting him out but then the swamp thing takes a different approach And just sort of walks into it willingly and peacefully and sort of explains how good and evil temper each other. And uh, in a Kirk computer sort of logic thing, this, this inspires the evil thing to basically form a big black evil hand, which then reaches up and merges with a humongous good hand made of shining light, thus vaguely changing everything, yet leaving everything the same. What? (laughs) Solid more. Yeah,
1: there you go, dude.
5: (laughs) So I love this comic.
1: Well, the um, as you went through it, I was trying to uh, basically flip through this through this issue as we went along, and this is the sort of I guess sort of uh, inventiveness and imagination that I've always associated. Just that kind of. I don't want to go so far as to say it, you know, just that weird druggy sort of fucky style, but more, well, I guess more, and more, um, in that, you know, there is a there is a logic that underpins all of this. There's a, or not even a logic. I guess there's a particular philosophy that underpins it. That's where Swamp Thing succeeded, where everybody else failed. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm misconstruing something, feel free to correct me. But
5: no, no, you see, Swamp Thing is perfect for Alan Moore. 'Cause and we've been noticing this, this sort of ties in with Star Wars Monthly Monday because we've just covered a couple of Alan Moore's stories that he wrote for and another writer named Moore. Two British writers doing four Star Wars stories. And they had a lot of magic and wizards and stuff in this. And you see, I don't know if I see this is a lot of people probably the people who, you know, don't aren't as much into drugs as I have been in, in the past and present and will be in the future possibly, um, I don't see this as being druggy as much as being almost British in the sense of like that's where Aleister Crowley came from. Oh, that aspect, Stonehenge you know. Mm. It's 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 based on that's like a British a, paganism
1: a, thing, right?
5: Yeah, and it's got a lot of Lovecraft thrown in. And a lot of um, just the this, this sort of creeping horror stories that, you know, and Swamp Thing is more of, it's, it, it's less of a superhero comic than more of an extension of, say, House of Mystery, which this has a framing element of Cain and Abel, you know, commenting on the goings on at the beginning and end, who would later be used a lot in the Sandman comics the these swamp thing comics there was another one where he went to hell to um um rescue abigail cable who had been sent there by her uncle and then in the issues leading up to this there was a lot of uh supernatural build up to this you know with weird manifestations of evil on earth and 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 such and so it just, it comes from the, it leaps from the pages of a horror comic. I mean, I think the next issue, let's see, I think I got that here, 51, The Arts by Rick Veitch and Alfredo Alcala, mm. who did a lot of like the old House of Mysteries and stuff like that. So it has that hyper-detailed, woodcut almost look of of those horror comics. And and the the team of, Beset, Vitch, and Total Ben. The first time I saw them was in Bananas Comics, which you could buy through Scholastic in school. And they would do horror stories. They did a werewolf story in this one, in this sort of art style. And, and it was in black and white. And oh. immediately I was like, ooh, these guys are like my favorite artists, you know, before I was even reading superhero comics and stuff. So when they showed up on Swamp Thing. I mean and still reading it today this is just gorgeously illustrated.
1: Well the moment that jumped out at me as I casually flipped through this thing for the very first fucking time and of course these <laughs> things aren't I don't know what it is like is there some sort of correlation between pretentiousness and not numbering your pages in comics I I
0: don't
5: understand I don't understand that either that's and it's like in this time period it's like almost random which books um numbered their pages and which ones didn't. I would love to know why they did that. I mean, now it makes it it would make us in, in CBR land, it makes it a lot easier. I guess it doesn't well, when they were printing these, there's not many people who are like, let's reference page
1: seventeen. Right. Know? Um, fair enough. But well all the same. It's just um there's a uh there's a panel to kind of illustrate your, well, literally illustrate your point. Um, and I I don't know the uh, the page number because, again, it's not fucking numbered. But basically, uh, panel one says, hey, big guy. Panel two says, you awake. Swamp thing comes to in panel three. Dead man, what happened here? Blah, blah, blah. That one. Towards the very end, like the next to last panel, mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's, it's a sort of uh, close-up of, sandman and his features have this sort of scratchy liney hatchy thing going yes. that i don't think is no literally nobody else in the comic looks like this even the ones that are vaguely human have real textures and real wrinkles and lines and all these other things i think it's phantom stranger alone phantom stranger yeah and he has this sort of it, this sort of apparition type of quality to him he's not like he's turning into mist almost right yeah he's just he's not totally like physically present but he is kind of and it's that sort of attention to detail that to me has always defined this particular art team like anytime i've seen them team up together not so much the the hatchy liney thing but more that they would i guess they pondered the ramifications of Fucking literally everything. Like if I was drawing yes. – I have no artistic talent whatsoever, but had I been drawing this page, that's not a, a detail I would necessarily have thought to include. The fact that they did kind of tells me something, you know? And it's – I think it's the rare art team, even now, that necessarily thinks about things like that to their logical conclusion. That, you know, for the, this wouldn't be a, uh, appropriate, an appropriate way to draw every single character – fucking it works for the phantom stranger right by yes. virtue of who he is and so it's you know it's it, it there's the line style and don't get me wrong that's great too there's a, some really fucking impressive attention to detail there you know with like flowers blooming and like slime falling off his shit and stuff so there's that from a technical basis that you that you can appreciate but also there's real thought an analysis put into every single one of these characters and the way that they interact with their environment, that, again, not to repeat myself, but I don't necessarily know that every single art team that comes down the pipeline would necessarily have thought to, I, I don't know, analyze things in quite the same way. So kudos yeah. to them. Kudos.
5: Well, I think what what happened with these guys is uh, I'm a huge fan of Rick Veitch, too, mm-hmm. and the stuff that he just done. And he's done a lot of stuff with Alan Moore, too. Oh, yeah. And I think what what would happen with it, and by looking at it, there's certain panels and pages that are pure Rick Veitch. I can ju- just the way the faces are drawn and stuff. But I can see a lot of Total, Total Ben, or not Total Ben, um, Beset. And I think Total Ben was generally the inker, detailer, and like and whoever. If say if Veitch did a did a page mainly, the other two would just come in. And put more layers on it, you know, would layer it and layer it and layer it. So they could probably talk about it, talk with more. And they just, yeah, there's so much thought put into it that it's amazing that they were putting out this book month by month, you know, back in the day. When I look at it, it's just like, how did they maintain this level of quality issue to issue, which they did throughout the entire Alan Moore run. You know, there's a couple issues that are weaker than other issues, but for the most part, it's this perfect fusion of story and art, and you know, a, a superhero comic and a horror comic, and a good um, sort of place to hang Alan Moore's Alan Moore stuff. On, I think this this comic is sort of uh, a harbinger of what was to come, well, ultimately for worse, I think, in my opinion, in the comics world. Do-do-do, I'm trying to... It's it's at the very end once, you know... And I mean, they've been building up for for like three storylines that this big, this big evil thing was going to come and, and destroy all of reality. And in the end, you know, it holds hands with God and they merge into a not- you know, uh, uh, they merge together and uh, the Phantom Stranger has a little uh, um, little speech at the end where he says, uh, where the Swamp Thing says, but the nature of good, the nature of evil, they have not changed. And he says, perhaps not, but I suspect a different light has been cast upon the relationship. In the heart of darkness, a flower blossoms, enriching the shadow with its promise of hope. In the fields of light, an adder coils, and the radiant tranquility is lent savor by, pre- by its sinister presence, right and wrong, black and white, good and evil. All my existence I have looked from one to the other, fully embracing neither one. Uh, never before have I understood how much they depend on each other. And uh, so he's basically saying, you know, we've gone from a black and white world to a shade of, shade of gray world now where there's not as much definition between black and white and things are more in shades of gray and i think it would that was sort of his comment on um comic writing Mm -hmm. because he's alan Moore. he's very pretentious he he never you know uh, uh, comic readers think of him as a comic writer but he's just a writer who happens to have written some insanely popular and wonderful comic books so he was definitely on the tangent of, you know, comics need to be better written, which I totally agree with him. But I think in his I I think what followed Alan Moore <laughs> was not an improvement on him that much <laughs> for the most part. Fair enough. So I think yeah, this is this was 86. So it, you know, I think the 90s were pretty much you know that was the sort of when the darkening of of characters and and stuff started happening and people were trying to write more realistic storylines or you know go the Frank Miller route and stuff whereas you know the Frank Millers and Alan Moore's and Neil Ga- Gaiman or Gaiman or whatever were more were successful because they were really good writers you know Frank Miller mostly in his time but the, the The people who copied them didn't get what made their stuff better than just the the trappings of it and uh, so I don't think we really ended up with a less black and white world in comic books, but I think this was it, it, at least not the way alan moore was was describing it, you know, I think he he thought it it, it was going to improve
1: isn't he the optimist well Well. um that actually sort of leads into something that i wanted to ask you about and of all people i figured you would be uniquely qualified to answer this question basically there came a point when uh, dc launched a new imprint called vertigo that the idea was to tell stories that don't necessarily have to have ramifications upon the mainstream continuity a good example being, why the last man? There's no way you could put that in mainstream DC continuity with shitloads of right. heroes and stuff running around. You, you just can't do that. So you need some sort of way, beyond saying that this takes place in its own universe, beyond even even that. You need, some, you, you need an imprint so that everyone understands that this is its own thing. Now this, obviously, this comic uh, predates the invention of the Vertigo imprint. So here's mm. my question was this the first even though I, and for for the moment forget about the fact that the vertigo uh little graphic is not on this uh comic books cover was this the first vertigo comic book in your opinion issue number 50 a swamp thing was this the first whether anybody realized it or not was this the first yeah
5: book? maybe it, it but um i mean they definitely during the this run, they were definitely running it into d c you know having it fit into d c continuity i mean in in three more issues of this, he's hanging with Batman
1: mm-hmm.
5: but maybe in spirit yeah this was this was definitely a more of a step towards adult i don't want to say underground because it really doesn't feel like an underground comic but it's like adult horror comics. Right. And, uh, which really there wasn't, I mean, there were magazine style, you know, horror comics for adults, but that just means they were the same house of mystery, but they had some boobies in it. (laughs) This is actually like, you know, if you, this has, I think he probably did a lot of historical research and, you know, and the, the, the artists were studying their, uh, Hieronymus Bosch paintings and and stuff like that there's a lot of there's a lot of references to pop songs in places I should have written them down there were a couple of straight out quotes out of pop songs of the day that Alan Moore lifted in there but it is it's it's this was did not feel like anything else it, I was a Marvel guy and read very, very little DC that came out in, for any length of time. I remember reading Amethyst, um, something princess, with the Gil Kane art, hmm. Swamp Thing, and I, I think I followed Firestorm for a while, the Fury of the Firestorm when that came out, because I really like the art and uh, New Teen Titans, because I like Perez's art. But all of that still felt like... I mean, DC almost felt like the Disney more mm-hmm. of the two. and Not that it was Disney-fied, because it still had sort of adult things happening in it. But it seemed like they, they wanted to keep their, their prop more, you know, mm. um, less gritty, you know, right. and... And this definitely did not fit into that at all. This has people getting burned alive and
1: demons on the the march. Yeah, all kinds of crazy shit. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so all right. Well, looks like I got my answer then. But yeah, I I, I hope you can appreciate though. There are, uh, you know, uh, in in podcast land, there are just not very many people that you know I could really ask that of. So, yeah. All right. So does that just about uh, do it for Swamp Thing Fifty for our truncated format that we have to work with here? I think that's
5: all about about all I could do unless we were going to do like two hours on it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I don't think either of us have that kind of time tonight. So all right, all right, cool. All right. Well, uh tell you what. Why don't you uh, uh, t- as if they don't know, but just in case, why don't you tell everybody where it is that they can find you?
5: I am on a whole bunch of podcasts on two true Most of them with my bestest buddy, Scott Gardner. We got monthly Mondays of Star Trek, Star Wars comics, and we do a commentary every month and sometimes bonus stuffs. And back to the bins, and of course, Tritus Magnus Punches Reality. Oh my God, we got Earth Destruction Directive. We got Just One of the Guys, Dinner for Geeks, just scads, hope of all trades, scads and scads of podcasts. And I'm not, you know, I'm going to leave a bunch of them out because. We're running on a time limit. I could talk, plug that longer than <laughs> plug Swamp Thing <laughs> number fifty. Uh, but yeah, two true freaks and you can go to iTunes and look for Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark and a number two.
1: All right. And since I've got you here, there's actually one other thing that I wanted to plug. Next week. Uh, Uh, Chris is actually going to be rejoining me So that uh, we can talk about The Big Book of Scandal From DC Paradox Press So that's coming out next week And I think that's pretty much it for this segment So I'm going to play some promos And I'll be right back after these messages
2: The swamp is my world It is who I am It is what I am I was once a man. I know the evil men do. Do not bring your evil here. I warn you. Do not incur
1: the wrath of... Swamp Thing. Yeah, 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 play it. Come on. Yeah,
2: play it loud! Play it loud! And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy... The Two True Freaks. Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish
4: emotions. A constant irritant. And
1: can't out freak! Two I'm on the circus. <laughs> right next
3: to
5: the dog faced boy.
0: True! I have come here to. Bubble gum and kick
4: ass, and I'm all out of bubble oh, shit Six. It's a super
3: prize package worth nine thousand
5: three hundred and
0: eighty-eight
1: dollars. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn
0: it! Ow! And now,
5: together by live simulation via the internet,
4: your hosts.
5: Scott Gardner.
2: He killed a police officer for Christ's sake! Goddamn
3: lucky did kill him.
4: And Chris Honeywell.
5: Keep away! Keep
4: away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar,
5: insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, hey let's go. She likes me, no eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, you. I say shut up! It's a house. A man
2: 2TrueFreaks.com From the King Titans, a
3: quartet of towering talents: Kid Flash, whose speed defies the eye to follow. Wonder Girl, swift and powerful super lass. Speedy, whose fantastic arrows perform awesome feats. Aqualad, bold and daring marine marvel.
5: Fabulous foursome for right against might. The Teen Titans!
1: Okay, I'm back now, continuing my 50th episode, Epic Milestone Anniversary Retrospective Spectacular Extravaganza. No, we're still not finished. There's still more to come. Joining me for this segment is podcast Jedi Master and all-around nice guy, Mr. Tom Panarese. Hello, sir, and welcome to the show for the very first time ever.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. And, um, you know, there's a reason I didn't want to mention your um, your uh, podcast going into this, like when I'm, you know, doing your introduction and everything. And the reason is because mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to save my sort of gushing for now. Okay. I am freaking in love with pop culture affidavit. This is... Oh, cool. Uh, this... I, I didn't even realize that I wanted a show like that until I heard your, um, your introductory 1994 show. Mm-hmm. And then, um, dude, you talk about a, just a kick in the head, dude. I, this was exactly what I wanted at exactly the time that I wanted it. It was exactly nice. what I hoped for. So, and, and since then, I've pretty much gone all the way back from episode one and then just picked out all the shows that, that just sound the coolest. Mm-hmm. The Columbia House thing, dude, I was never a member but I was a BMG man, and I, I knew exactly – in fact, I actually took that to – God, I wanted to talk to you about this. it, took, to, took this to this ridiculous extreme to where I had all of these uh, made-up names and free CDs and stuff come into my house, variations on my name and everything, and just spelled differently enough. <laughs> like like my
2: roommates in a running joke about the guy who lived with us named Tam Panacris.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know if you're necessarily – I because mean, when you say pop culture, you know, that that brings a very specific thing to mind. So I don't yeah. want to put you in a hole and say that, you know, what you do is a sort of nostalgia type of show. But, dude, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I'm, you know, you're sitting there and you're talking about uh, Green Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, no offense, Green Day never meant really anything to me as a band, I, apart from like, you know, a couple of their singles and stuff. Yeah. They just never really clicked. But at the same time, I do remember – what a big deal they were cuz it had been mm-hmm. so long since i think an out and out punk band had really been in the mainstream you had a lot of punk yeah. influenced type stuff but i mean like undiluted unapologetic balls out punk i don't think it had happened in a very long time yeah for me
2: th- it was um just on that band it was like it hit at the exact right time for me and it kind of hit a sweet spot where i was i turned 17 that year. So it was like, I. W- it was, it was like when I read, um, of all books, I read the catcher in the rye when I was 16 years old, because it was assigned to me in English class. it was like, it, it's like you, you read or you, you see that thing like right at the right time or the right age. And I think that's what one of the biggest impact, that's why it has such a big impact on me at the time. So, but no, I, I loved putting that episode together. In fact, I'm, I've got, um, I've got a whole I've got a running list of stuff I got to put together. So I'm actually happy that the school year is winding down. So now I can start putting these things together and getting more in the can. So I can um, kind I'd love to go biweekly with the podcast. And the only thing that gets in the way is just, you know, work in real life. So um, I'm hoping that I'll be able to step it up a little bit more as, as, uh, as we get into the summer, because I have a blast putting this show together because I can just kind of grab whatever I want and, and talk about it as opposed to um, like a comics index show where you have to do, okay, I'm doing the next issue, next episode and this issue, this episode. And you know, right. So,
1: and that's actually so the way lot. the way I like to have my show structure too. I um, intentionally broke away from doing an index show just because I'm so neurotic with my collecting and with my reading and all these other things that there's no way. I'm like for as much as I love Mark Wade's run on the Flash, there's just no way I'd have the time, the commitment, the dedicate. I I couldn't do it. And so not denigrating those who do including yourself but there's just you know i actually if anything i mean that as a compliment because you guys are obviously more dedicated to it than i am but uh anyway so you know kudos to you guys
2: i the same actually the same thing applies to me and chuck dixon on robin and nightwing because i did that with taking flight where i was doing it up to a point and then i just stopped for a little bit took a break and came back and i i kind of ripped off um, andy and michael's idea of doing seasons Mm mm-hmm and and like thematic seasons because that way you're right, you get to jump around a lot and, and choose different stuff and, and at least with, with a character like Robin, there's almost seventy-five years worth of history there. I don't have to take it from the eighties into the nineties. I can, you know, grab craft from nineteen fifty, whatever, even if it's not too great, and, and do a quick review of it. So you're right. And then the nom is the nom's easy. I've got the entire um series sitting in a long box now, so I can just you know, here's the next issue. <laughs> right. That's incredibly easy. It, it, that's an incredibly easy podcast to put together because I have it, you know, those you have like down by a certain, almost like a formula that you like, this segment goes here, this segment goes here, this segment goes here. Um, I love yours because you do those sort of blocks of episodes on one topic. And then you take a break with, um, I've been, been loving the big, big book report series. Uh, and, and yours is, um, <laughs> It's, this is going to sound weird. It's almost like you can binge listen to it. Like I can grab a whole block of all the Superman Begins episodes, which I did. And I just listened to them, you know, one right after another for the better part of a week, you know, almost like binge watching on Netflix. Like, you know. House of Cards or something,
1: right? And Which I still haven't watched. But. and, and, and I, honestly, I mean, it's one of those things that I think that every podcast. God, we are getting off topic, and we're never on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but with dark. this, I, you know, I, I do want to just, you know, maybe steer us back on uh, on yeah, sure. course here. But um, I never thought that I could ever put together a, a show that was everything to everybody. It it just never, it never crossed my mind. I went into this kind of, actually, I went into this with the awareness thinking, you know, that I, I'm going to be lucky if I have half a dozen listeners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why not just rock out with my cock out and just say whatever the hell I want, even if it's not necessarily in line with what other people think, at least it's different and interesting for the 12 maybe people (laughs) who are listening. And so, you know, it was never intended to be as big as it is. And so anyway, and, um, but you know, one of the things that I, that I kind of I, I It's really hard to listen to every single episode of anything you know because right. there are times when you're just you're just not into that particular subject if it's more of like mm-hmm. a like a variety type of thing like you and I do yeah um, then it's it's uh, it, it, it's just it's one of those things that not everybody is going to like every single thing that you do, so why not you know jump back and forth from a bunch of different stuff sooner or later you're gonna hit upon something that you know people are interested in or else why the hell are they listening to anything at all?
2: Yeah, I, so. I do that with them. Um, I do that with Mark Marin's podcast because as much as I love WTF, he does like two a week, and I'm like, I don't have the time. So if the guest looks interesting, I'll download it yeah. um, and stuff. So,
1: so. Well, um, now as to the uh, issue at hand, though, the and and, and I'm actually going to have to make another confession to uh, my <laughs> listeners. Uh, Mia culpa. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure <laughs> that this never happens again. But Tom has already been been apprised of the situation. Um. Things have been kind of chaotic for me lately and so Tom, you know, as with my, you know, the previous guest, it's not his fault that I did not read this comic. He gave me more than enough notice. He was extremely uh, open about it. He even told me, you know, his method for doing it. Basically, short of uh, showing up on my doorstep and drawing me a freaking diagram of how this is all going to work, I don't know what more Tom, you know, poor Tom could have done to uh, cooperate with me on this and through no fault of his own. I just was not able uh, to squeeze it in. So I already went through all this with Tom. He was a really good sport about it. And so what we've agreed to do is basically talk about this comic book and, um, you know, basically we're g- I'm going to wing it as best I can, keeping up. And hopefully I'll, I'm, I've i got a few things to say about the Titans anyway. But, uh, yeah. you know, Tom said that, you know what, dude, this is cool. Don't need to worry too much. And so off we go. Now, did you um, – I've already lost my train of thought. Did you actually introduce the uh, comic that we're doing?
2: No, we haven't. Let me What's... do that now. Um We are looking at Tales of the Teen Titans number 50, which uh, was cover dated February of 1985. And according to the Meanwhile column in the inside, uh, was on sale the week of November 8th, 1984. Um, If you're unfamiliar with the series, this is the series that started in 1980 as the new Teen Titans uh, number one. Uh, of the very, very famous and very, you know, much appreciated and, and deservedly so appreciated Wolf Marv Wolfman uh, George Perez run uh, around issue forty one. The title of the book changed from New Teen Titans to Tales of the Teen Titans because in issue forty five, the what was often referred to as the Baxter series started. Uh, the direct market only second volume of new Teen Titans uh, was released and they did that with several other uh, series. DC did that with I believe the Legion of superheroes mm. and the Outsiders I think was another one that got that and for a while in all of those um, in all of those uh, titles, you had about a year's gap um, in a sense where both uh, were were the titles where you had two these teams with two books. And each book was running original stories for about a part of a year, and then uh, with issue sixty of Tales of the Teen Titans, it started reprinting the the Baxter uh, the Baxter series because that was the newsstand uh, distribution series, and and the Baxter series was direct market, and it was DC's effort to get kind of a little bit more foothold in the direct market or get get the direct market kind of going a little bit more because the new Teen Titans was if it wasn't. It's number one best selling title at the time. It was definitely in the top. Uh, I think it was like among the top three. It was one of the best selling books that they had. So right. um, take one of your best selling books, make it a you know make it a d- direct market edition, and hopefully you can get people to um, really really you know buy in there and go to comic shops and do that. Meanwhile, you'll reprint the uh, the back the the new stuff in the in the old book as a reprint book, and there'll be a. There was like a six-month-to-a-year lag in in the story. So we have Tales of the Teen Titans. Um, and this particular book uh, really does mark the end of what was the first uh, Marv Wolfman George Perez run. Mm-hmm. Because... Like I said, the Baxter book was running concurrently with this, and right around the same time, the last chapter of was T- T- New Teen Titans number five, which was the last chapter of the Trigon storyline in that book, came out, mm-hmm. and that was Perez's last issue on that book until issue fifty of the New Titans, and you know that's down the road in like eighty nine ninety. Um, so this is this is kind of a um, a culmination. Of it, And uh, I can go right into the summary and, and description if you want me to.
1: Oh, go right ahead, please. Okay.
2: Um, so the cover is done by George Perez. Uh, it is a essentially a wedding portrait. You have Donna Troy and Terry Long,
5: mm-hmm.
2: uh, the bride and groom of the cover, uh, because this is the issue where Donna Troy uh, marries Terry Long. And we can talk a little bit about Terry Long. After I, th- I, I think we may something. need to, actually, yeah. That's going to be... But on the, to the to the left or, or my left and Donna Troy's right are her bridesmaids who are um, I know one of them's Lilith. One of them is hers two one of them, two of them her her step uh, one of them, her new her new adopted sister, half sister, uh, who she met in New Teen Titans 38, the who is Donna Troy story. Another one is Terry's daughter from a previous marriage. You have Sharon Tracy, who is a supporting character who I am trying to remember who exactly she was. You have Lilith. Uh, I believe her last name at the time was Crane. She was the psychic girl in the, in the original incarnation of the Teen Titans. You have uh, Corey Anders, a.k.a. Starfire, and Diana Prince, also known as Wonder Woman, who was the maid of honor. And then to the, um, to the side of Terry, you have the groomsmen, all none of whom are really of any significance. Uh, and behind them, there's a portrait of, uh, just several supporting characters among them. Um, I see Wally West, Dick Grayson, uh, Gar Logan, Vic Stone, you know, basically anybody else who might appear in the book. Uh, the, it's a, it's a beautiful cover. Um, and it's, uh, it, it is, you know, very, very typical of, of Perez, you know, a lot of detail and a lot of, uh, you know, good expressions and, uh, uh one of the things that makes this issue very special mm-hmm. is uh and it has that oh, it has that nice anniversary band. Remember the one from the the eighties would say anniversary and then this is fiftieth issue
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's outlined, it, it has that, which I always loved seeing that, yeah, um, one of the things that makes this book significant and I'll, we'll talk about this in a little more detail is that it is a wedding issue. It's not the first time we've ever had a superhero wedding um in a in a comic book right. it's one where at no point. Do do any of the superheroes except for one, like a one page or so interlude with Raven, are any of the superheroes in costume, except for I guess Cyborg? But that's because Cyborg's costume
1: overall. Yeah, that's was sort of his spot. look. Yeah, yeah.
2: And but but um. So it is completely a civilian issue as opposed to um. Even the the Spider Man wedding issue, if I recall correctly, and the Superman wedding issue, had at least one segment of. Uh, like Superman in the cape and Spider Man in the in the in the uniform, doing something. Maybe it was like you know stopping a villain, just almost like a nominal action scene or something. Right. This doesn't have it. So, um, I am reading uh for the for the summary sake, I am reading the notes and uh, synopsis out of the official issue number. This is issue four of the official Teen Titans Index. This was put out by a company called ICG, which was, I believe, just a, an imprint of Eclipse Comics back in the 80s. And they ran several of these. There was the Official Crisis Index, uh, the Official Crisis Crossover Index, both of which I had at one point and were are, are great. Um, I think there was a – I want to say there was a JLA Index, a Doom Patrol Index, and maybe an All-Star Squadron Index or something like that. They were running several, and they did the Teen Titans uh starting all the way back from the first brave and the bold adventures up until i think about roughly um the mid 1985 stories or so uh and this this is the type of stuff that on uh, on the more heavily indexed stuff on Mike's amazing world that you'll that you'll see this information we have um uh the story title is we are gathered here today it is a 40 page story as opposed to your typical, you know, twenty-two pages, the book did retail for a dollar twenty-five, but that's because it was a double-sized or extra-sized book. Our co-editor, co-plotter, and scriptor is Marv Wolfman. Co-editor, co-plotter, and penciler is George Perez. Inkers were Mike DiCarlo and Dick Giordano, or somebody working for Dick Giordano.
1: It's interesting. Uh, I don't know if this was typical of the time, but they don't get cover credit. I noticed that. That is actually. In, in my experience, anyway, it's, it's really it, it, this is how you know this is sort of a Lennon mm-hmm. and McCartney type of partnership. If if only two of them get cover credit, something's up.
2: Yeah, there would there were um, there were there were some issues where you would have three of them, where you would have the inker added to the credits. Um, usually, it was Romeo Tangal because that was for the longest time that was Perez's regular inker. Um, and I think Tangal deserves a lot of credit that he doesn't get because he he was a very uh, capable inker for George Perez. Um, uh, and uh, but yeah, I don't. I, this is it, it is kind of odd that they don't have a an inker on this because on um, like New Teen Titans number one and New Teen Titans number two from the Baxter series, it, it does say just Marvelman and George Perez, but Perez inked his own pencils in those issues and it shows. Right. So here he doesn't. So I don't know, whatever it, maybe it's just, it's, it's going to be a celebration of us. I mean, like I said, they were co-editors at this point, so they kind of controlled the book way more than, than any, either of them would on any of their books after this. Uh, our, uh, le- letter is John Costanza. Colorist is Adrian Roy. Uh, and there is one interesting credit. It says designer for the bridal party gowns is Carol Flynn, who is actually George Perez's wife. Um, so uh, she, she is credited with designing the, the gowns that he drew for the bridal party. Um, the, the feature characters listed are all our typical ones. Like I said, Dick Grayson, Gar Logan, um, Donna Troy, Wally West, Raven. Uh, we have appearances by Aqualad. Hank and Don Hall, Aqua Girl, Roy Harper, basically everybody who had been a Titan at this point is in this issue more or less. Uh, Mal Duncan, Karen, who were um, Harold or Mal and Bumblebee, Uh, Betty Kane, who at this point was still referred to as the original Batgirl. Yeah. (laughs) uh, because, Because the crisis hadn't happened yet. And after the crisis, she becomes Flamebird. Uh so um uh Charlie Parker who was Golden Eagle uh Wonder Woman makes an appearance the supporting characters you have Terry Long uh guest appearances you have let's see we see uh, Adeline Wilson who is obviously Slade Wilson's or Deathstroke's um ex-wife who is still alive and not completely nuts at this point uh Joseph Wilson known as Jericho who had just joined the team um uh, Sarah Sims, who was a sort of love interest, kind of sort of love interest of, of Vic Stone for a little while, but then they were more, uh, platonic, uh, Steve Dayton, who, um, is about maybe, oh, a couple of months from completely losing his mind yet again as Mento in, uh, in the Titans, but also in tying into what Alan Moore was doing in Swamp Thing. too. Right. Uh, and then a couple of other, other people, Francis Kane, um, we see, we have an interlude with the Amazons of paradise Island and we see Clark Kent is in here. Lana Lang is in here. Bruce Wayne, Queen Hippolyta, um, relatives of Donna Troy. Uh, we have, um, various creator, uh, cameos, Wolfman, Perez, and Adrian Roy are actually all in there at one point. They're all on like one little kind of panel. And the guest book is signed by um, you've got Tony Tolan, Mike DiCarlo, Michelle Wolfman, Jessica Wolfman, who was Marv and Michelle Wolfman's daughter, mm. Carol Flynn, who is was uh, Perez's wife, uh, Len Ween, Todd Klein, uh, Dick Giordano, Romeo Tangal, John Costanza. Bob Greenberger, a bunch of others, including, and it's misspelled, Rob Leifeld. Wow! Because uh, because there are there are people named uh, Lucy, Tina, Mercy, and Margie, and Joey, Joe Chani, Janet, and Doug, who all talk t- part of the Titan Talk APA. Mm-hmm. which I was never a part of, I you know, like the amateur press association, I think that's what it stood for. And so fanzines and stuff of, of the Titans back in the day. And I think Rob Liefeld was one of those sort of Titan super fans. Right. So, so he, it's just a his he had signed the guest book. They put his name in the guest book. All right. So um,
1: that's actually really cool of them. That's yeah. awesome.
2: Yeah. Um, all right. So our synopsis goes, It is Terry and and Donna's wedding day, and at Dayton Estates, a besieged Gar Logan frantically supervises the preparations. Of those invited, only Raven, slowly being overcome by evil urges after overextending her powers, is unable to attend. And we see Raven on one of her rock formations crying her eyes out because the evil that is her father is about to possess her and blah, blah, blah. The ceremony begins as Dick Grayson leads the bride-to-be to to the altar. Terry and Donna recite their vows and are officially joined in wedlock. Gar then introduces the wedding party and hosts the reception. Among the attendees and civilian guys are most of the present and former members of the Titans, as well as Clark Kent, Lana Lang, and Bruce Wayne. Cyborg is mystified when no one comments on his robotic appearance or or on the unexplained presence of a known teen Titan at the wedding until Changeling reveals that his adopted father, Mento, has used his powers to make all the guests see Cyborg as plain Victor Stone. Donna and Terry are puzzled when they are summoned to an upstairs room where they are greeted by Queen Hippolyta, who had prayed to the goddess Athena for permission to leave Paradise Island to attend her daughter's wedding. Later, Sharon Tracy and Joe Wilson catch the the throne, bridal bouquet and garter, respectively, And as the reception breaks up, the Titans present Gar Logan with a special medal medal in honor of his catering services. (laughs) Finally, Terry and Donna leave on Steve Dayton's private jet for their honeymoon in Greece. And it is that simple. It is her wedding day and nothing goes wrong. There's no supervillain attack. There is no, nobody has to hero up to steal a line from a completely different, um, (laughs) company and show. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is it is one of those like it it feels like a special it feels like a special episode of a, of a of a long running TV series where everybody comes back and this kind of epitomizes how much of a soap opera the wolfman paris titans were um I've heard people compare it to 90210 and I think it's kind of an apt comparison in in some places
1: um that was uh, actually one of the things I was going to ask you about now yeah. I feel like I've got a pretty good knowledge of uh, of DC's publishing history, mm-hmm. and the, the general <clears throat> the general consensus about it all seems to be that, um, as I'm sure as I'm sure you probably know, Marvel pretty much blew up in the '60s and then continued domination in the '70s. Not because of their characters, I don't think, but more it, it I guess it was a combination of that and the way in which the stories were told, and there really yeah. wasn't anything on DC's side to match that. So- Except for the Legion of Superheroes and the and the Teen Titans, where they didn't have these sort of uh, serialized uh, sort of uh, stories, and it was very soap opery in, in a in a weird kind of way. And yeah. I've always wondered if it wasn't just that it it, were, it really wasn't necessarily about the characters. It was it was the way in which those stories were told. And then basically these were the two the two titles Legion and Titans that sort of like, maybe cracked the code. And that's why they were able to break through at a time when DC really was struggling. I mean, you know, you know what what are your yeah. thoughts on that?
2: I think you're right. I think what what served. I, I'm not as familiar with the Legion. Um, I've read the Great Darkness saga, and at one point, I was I had quite a bit of the what was it volume three, the one that started the Baxter series with with uh, that Paul Levitz was writing, and I'd writ, I'd read a bit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the Titans. Yeah, they had this formula of giving these characters private lives and identities, um, but also giving them, kind of making them just really cool superheroes at the same time. And uh, there were apt comparisons to the Claremont Burn X-Men, um, which uh, which kind of Wolfman played up a little bit here and there. Uh, in fact, um, one of the one of the running jokes that he always has is that he created Tara as a response to his, to Claremont creating Kitty pride.
1: <laughs> I can see that actually. he,
2: he said they introduced Kitty pride and she was cute. Now, I like Kitty pride, but he introduced Tara and she was always supposed to be um a pain in the ass. And she was always going – they introduced her with the specific purpose of having her turn the Titans over to Deathstroke. You know, like she was always the mole. There was no – you know, it's not like they changed the storyline halfway through. She was always going to be a bad guy. And he did that – he kind of did that to subvert the the comparison, kind of have fun with it, and also tell a good story. But what they did really well – and I think Perez helped with this because from what I've read from interviews is that Perez kind of reined Marv in a little bit. Mm-hmm. They they space the action <clears throat> and the and the non action out very well. Like every issue of the new Teen Titans and Tales of the Teen Titans under both Wolfman and Perez has action. It has a villain or something, and it, it, the the story arc might be a couple of issues. Like there's a like the Brotherhood of Evil shows up and. They take a couple issues to fight them, but there's there's a villain that shows up and there's a main superhero versus supervillain story in just about every one, with the exception of a couple of issues. And all of the romance and the and the the soap opera y stuff is there, but it's it's subplot that runs throughout in the background, and you're you're, you're keeping up on it, but you don't feel like it's dominating every issue that you see, which would be the problem, for instance, in the late nineties, when like Devin Grayson was writing the book, uh, right. the Titans. And she just, <clears throat> she went totally in that soap opera direction. And there were times when I'm like, is anything going to happen? Or it's like, you know, do you want to write Nine of 90210 or friends or something as right. opposed to a superhero book, you know? So, so they struck that really good balance between that sort of soap operatic teenage, drama thing and action and and this is kind of the culmination of the of, of the character building that's been going on which is why i've always appreciated the issue and that it's unique and that you don't have a a single superhero moment in the entire uh in the entire book right more or less
1: right fair enough now as i was checking out the cover one of the things that mm-hmm. sort of hit, and i honestly it's not like there's this cover is unique in this regard. I think you can actually no. say this about a lot of uh, uh, George Perez's work over the years. This is mm-hmm. one of the most poster-friendly covers I think I've ever laid eyes on. There, yeah. You, I don't know if anyone ever did, but I think you could make and and this would be more of I, I guess sort of like one of those if you get it you get it type of fan fan service type of posters rather than you know some big iconic poster like uh perez's cover for Su- uh, action comics number i think it was 643 the one where superman following the events of uh, the exile storyline mm-hmm. he returns to earth and there's this sort of george perez uh a recreation of superman number one Yes. And that, I know for a fact, has been made into a poster. And I think it, that's one of those posters that anybody could appreciate. Right. This one, I think, would be a little bit more Taster's Blend, where if you know mm-hmm. who these characters are, because as you say, there's really nobody in costume. So if you know who they yeah. are and you know what they do, this that's going to be your emotional content for it. Yeah. So like, what are your thoughts?
2: I think you're right. It's a very fan service poster, but I think it only works because at this point, if you're considering the context that this point this title sold so sold that sold so well mm. that they had the they had the numbers to back up doing this issue mm. whereas you know, if, you know, if it was that it was like really, really niche and, and like, you know, maybe five people were going to buy the issue. DC would have been like, no, you have to do something else with this. Um, but I think you're right. It is, it is definitely, there's sort of a Valentine to the fans here in that, you know, um, this is not, this is one of the few issues of this series that's not a jumping on point for anybody. Right. Um, uh, uh, you know, you could, you could read it and get enough out of it to be curious about like all the stuff that happened before to uh-huh. lead to this, because, um, one of the things about the Donna Troy Terry long romance as it is, is that he first appears in new teen Titans number eight and he proposes an issue 30. So oh, wow. he's in, this is in the background for a lot of the run. So it's not like, um, it's not like he proposed, you know, six months earlier and all of a sudden they're doing this, you know, and stuff. So this has been in the works for a long time. So long time, this is definitely something that long time readers will truly appreciate. There's plenty of character Easter eggs in here that if you, if you can go back into really deep into Titans history, there's an appearance by Duella Dent who was the, um, the Joker's daughter
1: right from yeah. the
2: seventies. And she shows up and she's like, She just sees Dick Grayson at the wedding and she flirts with him and she's like 30 pounds overweight and, you know, old, like, you know, the idea that like some of the characters from the original series have gotten a little old now. And if if you don't know it, it's just kind of a funny little moment and you might go look it up and what what's going on. But if you know it, you're just like, hey, I get the joke there and stuff. Um,
1: (laughs) Well, uh, well, we've hit just about the 30-minute uh, mark here. So, I'm, honestly, there is there are a few other things that I actually would might have wanted to talk about. But you know what? There's actually an angle here I would want to bring you back for a future episode because this, I think, is actually the germ for a future show. So, sure. I'll tell you what. Um, so, let me just first of all thank you again for uh, joining in. And uh, also for covering for me so much like you did. I definitely, <laughs> I, dude, I really do appreciate that. No I owe no you problem. one. I want to go on the record in saying this. I owe Tom one on this. All right? I, he, guys, he really did save my bacon here. Now, the, uh, next, um, why don't you go ahead and uh, talk about where it is that people can find you? Because for sure, you've got several shows that people need to be listening to, and they need to know about them.
2: Sure, I've got three. Um, my, um, I'll start with Pop Culture Affidavit, which is my oh. blog. Say <laughs> blog and monthly podcast. Um the blog updates about every it, it should update once a week, um if I'm on point, and I, I have been lately. Uh and I've at a minimum I put out one episode of the podcast a month and and hopefully as as I get closer to the summer uh I will go bi weekly again. But um that is a, a podcast and blog about basically things that are random and sometimes obscure and popular culture. So I do movies, music, TV. I've done entire blog posts about, um, television commercials, uh, throughout the course of this year, I'm doing several entries and, uh, episodes about 1994, uh, because it's 20 years ago, obviously. And the title is 1994, the most important year of the 90s. And so far, just to give you a taste of what I've looked at on um, the, as far as episodes of the podcast are concerned, I've done Green Days, Dookie, I've done um, Reality Bites. Um, I have an upcoming episode about comics in 1994 that I, uh, that I host, that Michael Bailey host, co hosted with me. Oh, great. And um, I'm doing some sports stuff. I uh, I watched all nearly 24 hours of Ken Burns' documentary, Baseball. Uh, which I did in conjunction with the Forgotten Film Cast, which is another great podcast out there that people should check out. Um, so that so just about every week you can expect a new essay or blog entry, and then about every three weeks to one month, and then hopefully biweekly suit down the road uh, a new episode of the podcast. My other two podcasts are um, Taking Flight, which is about Robin and Nightwing. Uh, you can find that over on the Batman Universe. Uh, just about every two weeks I take a look at something uh, involving the boy wonder. Uh, right now I'm doing a series of episodes called the dynamic duo through the decades where I just take one story from one decade of, of Batman and Robin and just do a synopsis and review and, and stuff like that. Right. At, and my third one is in country. I am taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nam, starting with issue number one and going all the way to the end of it, which uh, is it, it's 87 stories. It's 84 issues and a three-story trade. And there's going to be 100 episodes. So every once in a while, I take I stop to take a look at a movie or book. And uh, I've done Platoon. I will be doing Full Metal Jacket. And and as of this recording, I'm about at issue twenty or twenty one uh, of of the Nam, and that includes a synopsis, and as well as like historical context and notes. So you can kind of know what was actually going on in the real world when the stories were taking place. And you can find that in country com.
1: and you definitely should. Those are, uh, those are worth listening to. Tom is not a lightweight when it comes to talking about uh, subjects that he cares about. Uh, and to give you an example of that, uh, his uh, his introductory show for the year 1994, the one that he entitled "1994: The Most Important Year of the 90s," opened my eyes to something that I honestly hadn't really considered. Specifically, that 1994. He doesn't bury the lead on that. That really is the nerve center for 1990s culture. A lot of things that had been building up to that point sort of reached a a crest, and then things that would come later had their beginnings. And so this, I I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it the pivot point, but it was so exemplary of everything that the 90s were all about. In this one year, I, you know, I, in a million years, I don't think I ever would have necessarily pointed the finger back at 1994 and put the thumbtack in the map to say, yep, that was the year, you know, but he did it and he did it in something like, what, how long was that episode? Like an hour and a, like an hour or hour and a half or something? Hour and a,
2: yeah, it was hour, hour and a half, I think.
1: Right, and so... Um, on the best day I ever had, I seriously don't think I, I could have done that. So kudos to you. I mean that if that's the only episode of, of pop culture affidavit that you ever listened to, I don't think you're doing yourself any favors. But definitely, you need to check that one out because. Uh, anyway, so that's 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 my gushing, uh, I, but I can I, go on and on about wow. your show.
2: <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that, and thanks for having me on. I, I discovered your show um a couple of months ago when when Mike Bailey recommended it to to everybody and i have had a blast i'm still i'm still not completely caught up on every episode but i have had a blast uh listening to this and uh, it, on, a, on a regular basis so i'm really i was very very happy when you asked
1: me to come on this is really really cool <laughs> well now, again i and i do appreciate you coming on so all right so that, i think that's about enough of that i'm gonna play some promos and i'll be right back after these messages
2: This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men, who even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In-Country a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with a look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com.
1: Okay, I'm back now, and I just want to let you know that originally this was going to be the end of the, uh, end of the show, but something kind of unexpected ended up happening that kind of threw this uh, whole thing out of whack. See, basically, it's now come to affect you listeners twice, and in fact, not just twice, twice in one episode my lack of availability, right? Lack of time, things that have been going on. And I haven't really elaborated on that too much because obviously it's a very new thing and there really wasn't a uh, an appropriate forum for it prior to this moment in the in the show. But I can do it here. Now, if you've been listening to my podcast for any length of time, you know that I haven't really gotten very personal too often that is to say I haven't really talked a whole lot about my personal life and things that are going on I mean I've talked about my girlfriend Stasis Magnus you know goings on with her and all of that even told the story about how she and I met and all that kind of stuff but by and large haven't really talked too much about me And there's actually a really good reason for that. For the past over a year at this point, I haven't really been all that happy with how things have been going in my personal life. And so the last thing I wanted to do was talk about it to all of you guys. Now... Excuse me, I'm smoking here. Because this is going to be a little bit of a doozy. Um, you know, what's been going on for the past year is that I've just not had a job, all right? Haven't had a job. And so it's been really sort of frantic trying to find something new. And very fucking bluntly, there was just nothing out there, right? Didn't understand what was going on. It just... It just, it, it seemed like, in spite of my sincerest efforts, I just could not find, could not find anything, right? And I, before I start, you know, getting into, you know, more recent developments, I just want to kind of give you a sort of Reader's Digest history of my, uh, of my professional life, and just some of the really just fucked up things that have happened over, uh, over time, because I think it's going to put newer developments into some kind of better context, right? Now, up until I was about, let me think, I guess up until about the time I was, uh, you know, 20 or 21, around there, I had sort of typical, uh, uh, just sort of uh, adolescent type of uh, jobs, you know, supermarkets and things like that, you know, Uh, just the kind of shit jobs You get them because, honestly, that's really the only place teenagers can work, right? And that changed when I was 21, when, for the summer of... Actually, I guess I was 20. So, for the summer of the year, uh, uh, for the summer of the year 2001, I was 20 years old, and I worked as a uh, computer tech at this computer company in the Heights, and did that basically for a summer and it was great money especially for a college kid because I was making something like oh fuck like three or four hundred a week or something like that you know great money great money for a college kid it's just perfect loved it and so that was really my first exposure my first interaction with the sort of eight to five type of I guess more professional kind of employment right Now, it was uh, something, I want to say it was probably about not quite a year later, after I'd left that company, I ended up coming back and did um, freelance web design. And I was working from home, you know, doing freelance web design, you know, uh, basically the days when I actually had any work to do, I'd come home from school, and I think I've even mentioned this a time or two in the past i uh, fucked if I can remember which episode, but I swear to think. I, in fact, I may have even been talking about Smallville. I'm not even sure if you guys have even heard that episode yet, but anyway. So, I was going to school full-time, and then I was working very part-time as a freelance web designer. I was, I was working from home. And then overnight, what I would do is i was I worked at a sort of this big box office type of retail place, right selling office supplies and and I was basically the night restocker, so if they needed to you know refill shelves and uh, assemble planograms you know that that kind of stuff that's that's what I did right in fact, I remember that spring break I went into that spring break of At this point, it's now 2002. I went into spring break with a fucking agenda. I was not, under any circumstances, going to finish off spring break without having some type of new job. Because I'd gotten fired from the last one. I guess I'll tell that story in just a minute. But what had happened was, it was spring break, 2002, and I needed to find some kind of new job really no more complicated than that, you know? And my attitude about it was, look, I'm 21. It's time to stop, you know, fucking around. I need to find a job. So going to school full-time, working, uh, like I said, very part-time as a freelance web designer working from home. And then I needed a a job to, you know, pay for for my other bills and stuff. So two jobs and going to school full-time. And if I may, I don't know too many college kids that can make that claim. So anyway, God, I'm awesome. Anyway, so that lasted for about 2 weeks at which time I was the company that I was freelancing for, they offered me a job as their sort of all-around internet guy. So anything to do with the internet, e-commerce or whatever else, that was going to be my job, right their website, everything. That's that that was going to be my job. And so I took the fucking job. Now like I said, up until that point I'd had very I think adolescent types of jobs. You know, like I said, there were supermarkets and stuff uh, before, and then when I was, uh, I was. This is heading into the um, the fall of 2001. I worked at a. Well, uh, I, I worked in the mall. I worked in. I had this. I'm not going to say what, you know which store it was, but I worked in a mall, and basically just doing a sort of the minimum wage kind of grunt work that you do at that kind of stuff. Excuse me, I'm smoking. In fact, if you hear a patch of silence just come out of nowhere, you can pretty much assume that I'm smoking. Anyway, so the mall job, right? That ended up coming to an end. And like I said, I'll be revisiting that in a little bit more depth later, so I can put all of this stuff into context. I just want to give you sort of an overview of everything. So, ended up getting fired from that, and then, like I said, then came, uh, you know, I went, I was going to school full time, freelance web designer, I was working from home, and I was for about two weeks an overnight stalker, restalker. Of of, uh, office supplies or really everything they needed to have done at this uh, office supply store that was near my apartment at the time so that was basically my life and then like I said the company for which I was freelancing they offered me uh, the job I was just telling you about where I'm sort of the all-purpose internet guy now my official job title was webmaster and then as now I hate that fucking job title hate it the webmaster. I'm the webmaster. What the fuck is that about, dude? What am I training to be here, man? Spider-Man? Jeez, I hate that fucking job title. Anyway, spare you that rant. So, that lasted for about a year, and I dropped out of school during that time because obviously if you're working full-time, you can't very well go to school full-time now, can you? So, uh, that lasted for about a year uh, from, uh, let me think, April of 2002 until March of 2003, pretty close to a year, and that's basically, that was my year, and so that ended up coming to an end, and it was sort of hard for me to find to find work, and so what I ended up doing was, I don't think anybody really, in you know, plans to go into the, I don't know, go into business as a freelance web designer. I don't think very many people out there Plan to do that sort of thing. It just sort of fucking happened, right? And what happened for me was, like I said, I was looking around for different jobs, couldn't find anything, and so the this fucking just genius idea that I had was that I could reconnect to the IT. Well, let me actually let me put the uh, proper label on there: the computer information technology uh, department at the college which I had been attending got in touch with uh, the department head. and Because I figured, you know, if anybody out there is going to be able to hook me up, she's going to be able to, right? And she and I were on pretty good terms. So I said, you know, look, at this moment, I think I've got a decent enough resume. Do you have some kind of employment or something like that that's that's available somewhere in your department or maybe elsewhere on campus? Something like that, right? And she didn't, but she said that what she did have was a uh, club that needed... that they, they needed some kind of new web page made for them. And she basically quoted me a figure. And if you have done any kind of contract work for government before, you know just how fucking ridiculously they, they pay you for these things. And I'm not going to repeat what the number was, because I think it's kind of poor taste, except to say, for a six-page website, I was ridiculously fucking overpaid. And I eventually found out why that is, why it is that uh, most government agencies find ways to get ripped off. And it was a very unpleasant insight into how these kinds of things are done. But anyway, another rant for another day. So um, knocked out some work for them, basically made that club's webpage. And then somehow my name ended up getting shared someplace else. And then that leads into other things and other gigs. And then before you know it, I'm rolling. I've got I've got more work than I know what to do with you know and at this point what I ended up doing was I just started up um, a company right And I, of which I was the president and I basically did web design I even had a team I want to triple underline this part not employees they were contractors I was this company's only employee I just used them on contract and what ended up happening was, between, let me think, between networking and schmoozing clients, because I didn't trust anybody else with the job, I ended up basically doing all the meetings and sales pitches and stuff myself, because, you know, let's face it, this is my name that's ultimately going to be on here, so I'm not going to trust, look, I trust me and myself, and I, I know how to behave in an office type of environment. A bunch of other fucking computer geeks. Who fucking knows? Who knows? Right? So I did that. I was meeting, schmoozing, and pitching clients, uh, landing contracts, going back home, organizing the team, figuring out who's going to do what. And then after all of that, I was doing my own work. So think about that for for just a minute. You're going to all of the meetings you're managing the team, and then you're doing basically your own portion of the design work. I mean, the hours were fucking insane. In fact, there were times when I didn't sleep for over 24 hours at a stretch, because there was so fucking much that needed to be done. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not complaining, because the money was fucking ridiculous. I I was making money hand over fist. Not the issue. The issue is, I have got to get out of this, because I don't Unless I can somehow figure out a way to clone myself and you know, offload some of this bullshit, there's just no way. I can't make this work. So I ended up finding a job I was at a different computer company in a different part of town. And that lasted for about six months. And then what happened was one of my former clients from my freelancing days got in touch with me and said, Hey, look, that website that you built for me, we're going. I'm pulling the trigger on this. I've got the funding that I need to start up my own company. I need you to come to work for me to be my all-purpose internet dude. And you're going to be basically managing the website, managing this own little department and everything. And and then the unthinkable happened. You know, And again, there's an entire fucking story here. I won't burden you with it. But basically, he made a series of really fucking stupid decisions that I knew were going to end up costing us in the long run. And sure enough... What ended up happening was all of the investors basically pulled out their money simultaneously. All at once, all at the same time. I want to say within something like two, maybe three, maybe four hours, everything was gone. All of it. No more money, no more capital, no more invest, nothing. All right, everybody, all of the investors, they were out. So that pretty much meant that Magnus was on the soup line now. So, that lasted for... I don't know. Let me think. Uh, probably two weeks or three weeks or something like that. And then I found this other job. You know, for a... Te- and again, I'm not gonna I'm definitely not going to name this company. Stacy, I think, is going to know who I'm talking about. But the rest of you, no. Uh, basically, I found this other job working for a telecom company. And once again... Uh, I... <laughs> It's this weird, fucked up pattern of life, I swear. I was going to be working from home, again, for a bunch, for, for this dude that I've never actually met, face to face, again, and it just kind of felt like, fuck, you know, I mean, is this, is this my curse? Is this my, is this just going to be the pattern of my life, you know, where my employment tends to take me into this sort of work at home type of thing, right? but it had happened so fucking many times now that it, it just sort of makes you wonder right because I was freelancing for that computer company in the heights I freelanced for them for something like two, three, four months I don't know something like that and you know during which time I was working from home and then whenever I was freelancing basically going into business for myself I was working from home and now here again at this point, we're into, oh boy, this is like November of 2004 now. I am now, once again, working from home. And it's like, fuck me, dude. I mean, what is it going to take to just find a normal nine-to-five type of professional hours office job? Can I find one of those, please? And apparently fucking not, right? And this one was maybe weirdest of all, because Here I was, working from home for a guy that I never fucking met face-to-face. I couldn't pick him out of a room full of assholes even now. All right? Worked for that fucking guy from November of 2004 to March of 2013. So, just over eight years, right? And... And then that basically came to an end. Uh, Like I said, March of 2013, that came to an end. And so from March of 2013 until now, spent this whole time running around trying to find another job. And I think, you know, those of you who have been in this position, who know where the economy is right now, probably can understand how difficult it is to find things right now. You know, and so spent this whole time looking for something and there's just, there's been nothing out there. Nothing out there at all. And so, and then you get into uh, March, last month of 2014, and the clouds kind of parted, and a little ray of sunshine flowed through. And it came to my attention that a web hosting company located here in town was looking for people. And so I thought, well, oh, fuck. I mean, look, I've been trying to get out of this whole computer thing for quite a while now. But it's actually, it's very much getting to the point where I don't have a choice anymore. I really don't. I've got to find something that I can, the, you know, that I can use for employment and stuff. And so, yeah, this is computer oriented, but, you know, whatever. I can write this out whatever it is that they need for me to do, ride this out, and then maybe find something better later on, someplace else. And so originally that was, you know, the attitude uh, I had in mind whenever I applied for the job. And then I had a preliminary interview, and I'm not going to bore you with all the details, I just got to set the scene, had a preliminary on-the-phone interview with uh, the HR guy, and then had an in-person interview with uh, the director of uh, the department that I would would be working in, which is tech support. And in short order, in spite of the fact that I think I gave a mediocre over-the-phone interview and I showed up over half an hour late to the in-person interview, against all fucking odds, I somehow end up getting the job at this company. Nobody was more surprised than I was. Right and especially since honestly web hosting i you know i've my background is more web design I mean I guess I have some understanding of web hosting and d n s and all these other things, but I am in no means an expert on these things i i I know basically enough to be dangerous, mostly to myself, and then that's about it, and so they want me anyway, and so they sent me over the offer letter and the hourly wage they're talking about is basically what I need, and there's basically a shitload of other perks that come into this, and so the reason that I haven't had as much time lately to uh, read comics, and how that came about affecting uh, both Chris with Swamp Thing number 50, and then Tom with Teen Titans number 50, is because Today, as I record all this, I have completed my third day of training. Now, training itself lasts for three weeks, during which time we're going to be, you know, drilled and instructed and uh, basically taught a shitload of things, and it's already uh, paid off. I've learned so fucking much just in the last three days. It, It boggles the mind to think what must be in store for the remaining time that I've got in training. And so... As I come through all of this, though, since this affects all of you guys and very possibly the future release schedule for this show, I figure it's only fair to explain why all of this is, why this is happening, why it is that normally, I mean, look, whether you agree with the things I say or not, I hope that the very minimum that we can all agree on is that I usually come into all of my shows very well prepared. I mean, I'm not here to waste anybody's time. You know, and I'm glad that people enjoy my show and there's entertainment in it. But at the same time, I don't want anyone to feel like I'm just sitting here marking time and you know blowing everybody off and not taking this whole thing seriously. And you would be hard pressed to know all of that based upon aspects of of, of this episode number 50. So, to me. Full disclosure is one of those things that I thought might go a long way toward explaining why it is that things were so just kind of fucked up in this episode. And you know what? To be fair, a fair amount of that may have been because I was stupid enough to plan all of this stuff for what I knew was going to be a weeknight, you know, when I, when I knew that training was going to be going on and everything. I guess I just <clears throat> didn't take it all very seriously. But I got to tell you guys, you know, I have worked some absolutely fucking soul-crushing jobs in my time, all right? I was fired from a mall job in November, the mall. This is the epitome of retail. It doesn't get more retail than working in the fucking mall. So what does it take to get fired from a mall job? In the build-up to the Christmas shopping season, I don't know, but I apparently fucking managed it, all right. And I actually know what the causes of that were. Honestly, the boss, the person who fired me from that job, she was just a fucking bitch. Okay, there's really no nice way to say it. I'm not gonna try. She was a frigid fucking bitch of an individual, all right. Now, as it happens, and as I alluded to somewhat in my first episode when I was sort of going on and on about Smallville, and then I think sort of touched upon in subsequent Smallville-oriented episodes, I had just broken up with somebody, and it was a pretty fucking horrendous breakup. I mean, this is probably the worst breakup that I have ever had with anybody ever, right? And that kind of affected I mean, I don't want to, you know, be all dramatic about it, except to say that I think, you know, looking back on it now, I think I went through a little bit of a depression. And, you know, because I thought that I was going to be settling down pretty soon and getting married and all of that. And no, that's not, that is not what happened by any means. And so, I guess the realization all that, of all that, the, uh, the loss of it, it kind of had a very, uh, you know, a very big effect on me. And one of the things that ended up happening was... Uh, For that semester, which was fall of 2001, um, I missed a shitload of, uh, of school, you know. I was in college, and I missed a shitload of school, a shitload of classes. I mean, honestly, it was really hard sometimes to find the inspiration to get out of bed some mornings, you know. And, of course, that also meant, at times, calling out sick from work, even though I really wasn't. You know, it's just I could not find a very good reason to leave home. Right. And again, I'm not trying to turn this into, you know, like fucking Mopey Magnus or anything like that. I'm really not just trying to basically kind of maybe give a little bit of her side of the story, the boss's side of the story, maybe why she did it. But at the same time, I also know that when I was there, I took the job very seriously. I was diligent about everything that I did. And she's a fucking lunatic. She's a bitch. And I think in the end, it probably worked out for the best. So fuck her. But So that that was just a horrible fucking job anyway. And then after that, like I said, in short order, I was freelancing for a while as I went to school full-time, as I also worked overnight at that uh, big box retail place. And you want to talk about another soul-crushing type of situation, separate from really all of those things, to go to work for the company that I'd been freelancing for full-time, and that place was a fucking mess. I mean, it's like every day was, oddly enough, worse than the last. You know, and I know that that company is still around now, and I, don't, I honestly don't know how. It's like that company is successful in spite of its management and, the, and, and its owners because they make just the fucking most obvious rookie Bush League mistakes that I have ever heard of. Right? how they've ever stayed in business is completely fucking beyond me. All right? And I didn't get paid for shit while I was there, in spite of the fact that by the time I left, it took 3 fucking people to replace me, you know, all of whom were making at least as much as I'd been, so you tell me where the wisdom was in that. Part of the reason I left was cuz I wasn't getting paid enough. And then I go into business for myself. And yeah, you know, that is rewarding. And what not to know that you built something up from nothing. Literally, from the ground up, I did build that all by myself. I did make that happen all on my own. And at the same time, though, the hours that you're putting in, it's like, fuck, dude. I mean, yeah, the money's great, but why? Why, you know? And so I ended up going back, I ended up stopping all of that stuff, getting a job uh, elsewhere, and really wasn't making a whole lot of money there. either. But at the time, I kind of had fuck you money, so I could have quit at any time. Up to a point, I could have quit at any time. And, you know, been just fine and found some other kind of job. Went to work for, let's face it, you know, that, that client of mine who who called me up out of the blue and said that, you know, his startup company's ready to go. And it's basically a dot-com. I mean, let's call it what it is. And that ended up falling apart. And when I was working at that, Computer company. It was just, it was just a redneck type of place. I mean, it was red fucking neck. This is the most country place I have ever worked for. Right, countrified, like you would not believe. And so I wasn't really too sorry to quit that. But it, you know, when my former client's company went fucking belly up, better believe I was sorry about that. Didn't really make a whole lot of money from either of those jobs. Then I go to work at that telecom company, working from home from November of 2004 to March of 20. Uh, Thirteen, and I mean I made I guess a living, but it's just it's a job, you know. It's what you do to put food on the table, and that's about as much as you can save for it. And then that ended up coming to an end. Basically, what happened was, I worked for this guy who lived in New York City for a company that was based in California while I live in Texas. Now, some of you may be asking, how is that possible? And the only answer I can think to give is, dude, I'm awesome. You know, what do you want to hear? But that was another just fucking soul killer because, again, like I said, the money wasn't all that. But the other thing was, the president of the company, my boss, my immediate boss, because it was a very small company, look, people, I know from mental illness, okay? Now, I don't know what this guy's uh, issue is. I just know he's got more fucking mental disorders than I have toes to count them, all right? I, this guy's just got fucking problems. It's 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 simple as that. And honestly, he would... You make compromises in order to keep your job. I mean, as adults, I think we can all admit we put up with a certain amount of bullshit, let's face it, in order to continue working, right? And so one day he'll ask for something and I don't really want to do it, but I compromise uh, on it and I decide, you know what, yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. And so then he asks for something more extreme the next time. More extreme, more extreme, more extreme. And every single part of the way, I'm always compromising. I'm always the one that's falling back and retreating. And then finally, I knew this day was going to come sooner or later. He's going to ask for something that I can't give him. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Again, not going to get specific, but I am going to say that he asked for something that I think was completely fucking unreasonable. Unreasonable. We have an amendment in the Constitution that basically abolished the practice of slavery, and if I had agreed to do what he wanted me to do, basically that's what we're talking about. Slavery. And so I had a pretty good idea of what this decision was going to cost me, and I still, I mean, I'm sorry, I just, I could do it, you know, call it principle, call it foolish pride, but I knew that I just, I could not go along on this one, and so I told him, politely, I hope, but I told him, no, I am not, I, I'm not going to do that, and I was pretty sure he was going to find some kind of bullshit excuse to fire me, and That's basically what ended up happening, and so here we are. Uh, Now, I ended up getting unemployment off of that because I'm not stupid. In spite of whatever he may have thought, I'm not stupid. I kept emails about certain things, and it made it very clear that I was being, I was not quitting, which is what he wanted to say. Uh, My employment was being terminated against my will, and I found basically email to prove that, I gave it to the Texas Workforce Commission, and so that's how I came about getting unemployment. So, fucking Harvard graduate. I'm sorry, Wesleyan graduate, and then graduate from Harvard School of Law. So, I don't fox to that guy, but hey, I'm just... I'm the stupid, lowly Texan college dropout. Well, asshole, who won that one? Huh? Who won that one, buddy? Fuck you. Anyway, not like he's listening, but... In my mind, I like to pretend like he's listening, and fuck you. Anyway. So, during the during the intervening time, though, again, March of 2013, up to now, fucking, there's just been nothing out there. And so finally, I find this web hosting company, and I was thinking, well, I can just grit my teeth and, you know, collect a paycheck, all the while finding something else that's out there. And dude, ever since I've... Ever since I did my in-person interview, I liked this company. I like the way that they do business. I like the way that they treat their employees. I like how everybody, including the fucking current CEO, started out in the same entry-level position that I'm going into. They do all of their promotions uh, inside. They don't like going outside because there's somebody talented enough at the company to do the job. Their attitude is, we will find him and promote him, or we will train him, and then promote him. But they promote only from within. If you come to work for this company, bet your ass you're starting out in the same place I am, and from here, the sky's the fucking limit. They offer health insurance. They've got, uh, within reason, a very lax dress code. I mean, I went to work today, training. I I showed up at the office today in um, a pair of jeans, my usual work boots, and then a a, a t-shirt. Right, and I fit right in with everybody else. This is not a in any sense a formal workplace. Now, it's not as lax as that redneck computer company I worked for, where basically you can get by with showing up in a loincloth and that's about it. They do have standards, but you know, if you want to wear a pair of jeans and a T shirt to work, that's what the HR people are wearing, you know? And so all around, you know, it was just a really I felt like it was a really good fit from the start. You know, you get free lunch. They have a cafeteria where employees get free lunch. The food's pretty good. You know, it's not exactly five-star dining by any stretch of the imagination, but considering that I pay nothing for it, I don't need for it to be that great. I just need for it to be edible, and it is. It's actually pretty good, I think. And, you know, it's just, after all of these years of just fucking soul-crushing, agonizing jobs where... Somebody's on some sort of a power trip or something like that to have to go to work at a place where people fucking respect you. This is a completely new thing for me and my professional life. Most of which, if you're if for those of you keeping track, most of that was spent working from fucking home. All right, now the idea of going into an office where people and you know respect you they treat you like a human being they know very well that you that you are a human being you're not a fucking slave that you're not someone that they can just treat like, like treat like you're their bitch or something like that pay you absolutely nothing the basically the very minimum that they can get away with and then bitch and complain when you're not doing when they think you're not doing a very good job at what you do and i feel like and i don't mean this from the sense of you know, like some kind of bullshit sense of entitlement. Because if there's one fucking thing I hate about my own generation, and there are many of them, but if there's one thing I hate about my generation, it's it's how everybody my age seems to feel like we deserve certain things, and I'm sorry, you've got to fucking work for. What bothers me, though, is that when those of us who I think have worked for it, it, whatever it is, a decent salary, decent working conditions, fucking health insurance, or just whatever... When those of us who have put in the effort fucking don't get anything. That's what pisses me off. But, so I hope you understand. I don't mean this from the, from the point of view that, hey, I deserve this because I'm me. No, I don't mean it like that. I, 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 but what I'm saying is I feel like this is sort of the payoff for putting up with a lot of just really fucking horrible jobs. I mean, I, on the one hand, I feel like I can't really complain too much because I know some people who have worked some very fucking shitty jobs. Fucking shitty jobs, right? So uh, there's a sense in which I almost don't want to complain too loudly. But I do kind of feel like, you know what, in some way, considering, you know, the most obvious thing, obviously, is employment. But then, you know, there have been some other things that have gone on, too. This is where all of that stuff comes home to roost, you know? And after all of this time, all of these years of being treated like shit, treated like an idiot, almost being, uh, in fact, at at times, being outright fucking told that I'm an idiot, to go to a place where none of that happens, nobody expects you to be anything other than what you are, they value you based on who you are, that, in fact, who you are is why you're there, and they value you, you know, you're not just a number, You're 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 a person to them. And they believe that if you have the right amount if if you put in the right amount of effort and you have the right amount of training to build from, there is no telling what you might be able to do for that company. And this is the first time in my fucking life anybody has ever given me has ever given me this type of opportunity. You know? I'm thirty three years old and it feels like if I handle this right, I can make a career out of this. And I hope you guys understand now, whenever I say that this is the reason why I haven't had as much time to uh, do all of the reading and stuff that I needed to get done for this uh, specific episode of my show, this job is why. And I hope you can understand that you know the choice I made, I didn't make it capriciously. It wasn't just a, a fucking arbitrary thing for me. I went into this with an agenda knowing that, you know what, dude, if my podcast has to suffer, well, guys, I'm sorry. Not fond of that either. But this is how things have to be. And so that's the decision I made. I stand by it. Now what this means for the show's future, I fucking I have no idea. I have no idea. I would like to be able to continue releasing this show on a weekly basis. And in fact I think that, you know, I think that's actually gonna be very much on the table because I have such a back well, a backlog. I have so many episodes on deck ready to go this is why I did this, because I knew that once I got a job, this may very fucking well be what ends up happening. I just have less time to do it. Well, now I have a, sh- a, a just a vast fucking stockpile of episodes. I can just keep on, you know, just, you know, pumping them out, you know. And and so that's, but it may come down to the fact that, you know, so at some point I may have to turn this into a bi-weekly show or a monthly show or something like that. And, you know, I hope you guys understand that's not what I want but that may be what ends up you know needing to happen but on the other hand what you guys need to understand is that this this show Trentis Magnus Punches Reality this kind this whole thing was born of the fact that I'm not one of those people who can just fucking sit around all day watching TV I'm not built that way I can't I need to do something every single day I need to make something I need to do something I need to create something you know I need to something produce something, you know? And that's one of the reasons why, apart from the money aspect, I need a job to keep myself occupied. I've got to do something with my brain, with my energy. And so when I don't have an outlet for that, as I haven't for the last year, I did all kinds of crazy things. I'm, you know, you hear all the time people talk about uh, fan edits of movies, and I think the Star Wars prequels may be the most edited uh, fan movies I ever... And I made my own Star Wars fucking fan movies. It's basic. I call them the Star Wars prequel trilogy, the instrumental cut. And basically, what I did was I took each movie, and I, the idea was not really to tell a story. It was basically to put John Williams' original score for those films, match the music up with the scene for which it was intended, and then see if George Lucas's oft-quoted well, these are meant to be silent movies. You know, that whole bit that he's always going on about. See how true that really is. And in some cases, guys, it's fucking true. And in some cases, the movie's just hacked so much to pieces. At this point, it really is more George's fault than it is John Williams or mine, right? But I kind of wanted to know, and now I do. And guys, there's no point looking for that on Torrance. I haven't released it, and I probably never will. I don't want well originally I didn't want Lucasfilm to sue me now I don't want Disney to sue me so so there's that alright I, I I developed those I knocked them out episodes 1, 2, and 3 got them all done and then I needed some other project out of which came *Trinus Magnus Punches Reality*. so then I have that going on and then that this is this show has actually really been a godsend for me because it's enabled me to all this energy that I've got to do something with it's enabled me it's basically giving me an outlet and I can just pour all my energy into this and think, you know what, I don't have a job but at least I had fucking something to show for today and you know what, no, it's not paying the bills but at least, you know what, I'm not out there going crazy because I've got all this pent-up energy, right? And so, to me, it was worth it. Now, what that means for the show's future, fucking I have no idea. I want to continue and I'm going to try my best to But guys, we're actually getting to a point now where I may not be able to meet a weekly release schedule as I originally envisioned. Like I said, it may have to be bi-weekly. It may have to be monthly. It may have to be just whenever I can do it. I fucking... I have no idea. All right? All I'm saying, though, is that the job that I've got right now has enabled me, basically for the first time in my life, to be enfranchised in something, I guess, bigger than me. Because always before, I had jobs that, like I said they pay the bills, they put food on the table, but that's really about it. That's all that's really all you can say. This isn't really something you could make a career of, or even if you can, do you really want to? You know. And so now here we are. I I've, I've got a job that I that I can feasibly uh, build into a career. You know, I can go somewhere with this. And you know, I'm giving this thing my absolute best effort because I feel like there is something real on the other side of this and so that's that's where we are with it right now and so look again all I and I know I've been kind of blabbering here but I hope you guys understand this is a big thing for me and so those of you who have been in this position where now you've got a shot at something something big bigger than you've ever had before you're not going to be in any kind of hurry to let anything risk fucking that up for you and so guys i don't want to I, I don't want you to come away feeling like you know you're the the problem here or like you're my fucking distraction or you know some kind of you know dramatic bullshit like that no i don't mean it like that i'm all i mean is that you know this is this is a big thing for me and i hope that you know you guys can all appreciate that you can respect that and if i end up having a sort of wonky schedule in the weeks months and years to come you can at least understand why. But most of all, I want you guys to understand all of this because I don't want you to feel like I take you for granted. This is my 50th fucking episode, y'all. And I couldn't have done this without Scott Gardner's uh, support. Chris Honeywell offering me a slot on the Two True Freaks podcast network. Fanboy is Prime. Uh, J.C. Byrow, P.Q. River, and tons of other people sending me email and things that I can uh, read and then respond to online. Everybody who's ever filed a positive iTunes review for me. All of you in the podcasting community, not least of whom is Michael Bailey, who have talked me up on your show. Thank you. Fifty fucking episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and it's only fair, number one, that you guys get the kudos and the credit and the gratitude that you deserve, but also the disclosure that you deserve, that if this show does does move away from a weekly schedule, you guys are the ones that put me here. You need to understand why, and now I hope you do. I, it, The last thing I would ever want any of you to think is that I don't respect you. And to me, it would be more disrespectful. Number one, to let this occasion go by without thanking you from the bottom of my heart for sticking with me for 50 episodes. But also, giving you a fucking explanation as to what's going on in my personal life, which I haven't talked all that much about on this show before. Because like I said before, honestly, I haven't really liked it. It's been a kind of sensitive topic for me. And the idea of talking about it on mic hasn't really been all that attractive. So... I hope you guys understand why it is that things may change in the future, but I also hope you understand how grateful I am that you've hung with me all this time. Thank you, because I couldn't have done it without you. All of you, whether I mentioned you by name or not. Thank you. I appreciate it. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, Episode 50. There it is. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T R E N T U S S -S M A G N U S S. You can email me and my parole officer at Magnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2 twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy. And can help you spread the word about your show i'm always looking for more promos to play keep it fairly short and yours could be next my promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested just look for the promo section the contents of this podcast are fictitious hypothetical and probably completely unnecessary any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De Mansocor of Milan, Italy.